Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, everybody, and kind of welcome to Podcast 99, but what sort of. podcast like it's 1999, but what we're, what we're doing right now is this quick programming note. As we've said, we're going to cover TV shows. We are. And you may recognize this song as a theme song to the 1999 uh, masterpiece. Yeah, masterpiece. Uh, Freaks and Geeks. Paul Feig Feig. We'll figure that out before the episode. <laughs> Judd Apatow and a million actors you know. Yes. Um, Put this together in 1999. We're going to do every single episode. We've got incredible guests, including the guest for this week, Alan Seppenwall, the the guy who invented the television cre- criticism. Yeah, currently yeah. the reviewer for uh, Rolling Stone, but so many other things. Um, coming on to talk about episode 101, the pilot. Um, so many guests. other we guests. We've got David Iserson, we, we got we, Ashley Lyle, Bart Nickerson. We'll just spoil them all right now. But, uh, <laughs> no harm. But uh, Fridays, Freaky Fridays, every Friday. You can find the your podcast like it's nineteen ninety nine. They're shorter episodes. They're awesome. If We're you like gonna- Freaks and Geeks, if you didn't like Freaks and Geeks, listen to this. <laughs> We're also going to do uh, bonus episodes, hopefully with cast and crew, writers, creators, all that sort of stuff. Yes. Give you the most in depth. Uh, you know, we're going to just go deep into Freaks and Geeks. It's going to be great. Yeah, we're going to dive deep into these waters. Um, but now, as promised, snow will fall <laughs> on Cedars. Thanks for listening.
Hello and welcome to Podcast Like It's 1999, the podcast where we talk about the films of 1999 from a fishing boat here oh. in 2019. I'm one of your hosts, Kenny Nivar. I'm Philisco. Is this our only fishing boat movie? No. What about like the uh, what about the shipping news? Is that about fishing boats? It is, but I mean, it's not a 99 movie. Yeah. Well, there you go. What about <laughs> pushing? Do. What about pushing? Kid? Is that about fishing boats? <laughs> fishing no. planes. Fishing planes. Yes. Yeah. Fishing planes. It can't be our only fishing boat movie. I'll I'm sure there'll be little, another one. I'll think yeah. a little bit more about it. Um, but here we are. I did just watch Serenity, though. Speaking of fishing boats. Oh, you finally watched it? Yeah. Have I you did. heard about Serenity, Alex? Yeah. Matthew McConaughey, Anne Hathaway. Seems like you're watching a movie about fishing boats. Fishing boats. But you're not. And about halfway through it. Well, I don't want to give too much away. Please. Because spoiler for Serenity. If you people find are going to fucking watch Serenity. Like halfway through it or like the end. I don't even really it's like know. like halfway. The whole movie you find that is basically Matthew McConaughey <laughs> had died in the war. And he was actually a video game character in a, in a video game created by his son. Oh. And who's one being of those. abused. But also he's Ugh. put like his mom in the video game. But his parents have sex in the video game. And – it's it's really it's a truly terrible movie. Oh, it's it's but it's it's one of those things where I, I wanted it to be even it's weirder. A, it, it wasn't nearly because Kenny's fun. a big twist guy. Kenny loves love, a twist. I love a good oh. twist. So I was excited to hear your that's thoughts on, like, on this twist. That's why I like Snowfalling on Cedar so much. <laughs> it's, all, it's all twists. All the twists. Yeah. It's like another fishing boat movie. It's like wild things. He's actually dead. It might make, yeah, I mean, it would. So I, I just want to run the name of the Firefly movie. Yes, it is. It is yeah. It's but it's the name of the video game that the kid created in some sort. Okay. No, it's not. It's the name it's of the boat. Oh, fuck. I'm the sorry. boat. I didn't really give it a name. It's All like right. the, the game is like zeros and ones. It's so, so stupid. Crazy. Yeah. So we have Alex Wu here today. Oh, yeah. Sorry, Alex. <laughs> no, thanks for having me. No, we just <laughs> walked in. I didn't know what was going on. <laughs> um, and uh, I'm, we're so thrilled to have you here. Thank you. Truly. Um, I don't know when this is going to air. I don't know. Never. No, no, that's not true. This will definitely – This will air and this will air – Who knows? This will air during the airing of Alex's television How many episodes do you have? Uh, We have 10 total. So you can listen to this instead of watching the show. Right. (laughs) Or or in conjunction. (laughs) People are very busy. (laughs) Yeah, people are so – Everyone should watch the show. I watch the the pilot. It's fantastic. The The show is The Terror Infamy. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, limited series. So this is a n- entirely new story from the terror from last year, That's right. which was about a fishing boat. It, no, no, <laughs> it boats. It, it, was, it is about boats. Yeah, yeah. A, the, our show has a fishing boat in it. Does it does. It? Yes. Um, but uh, the the first series was about uh, an ill-fated uh, British expedition to find the uh, the Northwest Passage, mm-hmm. and for all the fans of. Terror one, they will get none of it. In the <laughs> different show, different cast, different writers, different everything. Sure. Um, so all the good so work we built up in season one <laughs> is gone for season two, just starting from scratch again. Well, I mean, it's uh, Alex and I were talking a little bit before we got on mic about how the terror was. It was built to be anthology in yeah. some form or another. So I think that there's. I, I, I mean, I've watched the pilot of, of Infamy, which I thought was fantastic. There are Everyone a lot of terrible things in the world. Lots of terror. So, uh, real quick on Alex. Yes. I, I prob- speaking of terrible things. Terrible no. things. <laughs> what a great segue. <laughs> Thanks, segue. Oh. Well, I mean, that's, that's, that's why I get paid the big bucks. Because um, uh-huh. I promised I would remember this. Alex. Yes. Writer and showrunner, you want Wonder Falls, Manhattan. I want to do it in order. Uh, sleeper Cell. Yeah. Was I not in order? No. All right. Wonder Falls. <laughs> then you got Sleeper then you, yeah, Cell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Manhattan. No. True, True Blood. True Blood. Manhattan. We're missing something. Are we missing um, something? Henry Lask? Uh, uh, there's a couple things in there, but that, um, uh, 
there was LAX, which was the oh, you were uh, oh, the, yeah. the Russo's and the Locklear and uh, Bellamy, and, right? and uh, uh, Blair Underwood. Oh, I'm thinking, you know what I'm, thinking LAX. Of, I'm thinking of the Tiffany Amber Thiessen show with Bill Bellamy. Oh, oh, wait, what was that called? It's like Speed or Faster, Fast Lane. Yeah, LAX. I thought could have been a good show. Well, here's my question. I, I, I do. I, I so many. Things. I didn't know you worked on LAX. Oh, so I do want to know what the writers' room fan. was like. I mean, who doesn't love a, an airport? But I how, do love airports. I, no, I'm saying and I love doesn't. LAX. It's a great airport. How do you make a show? Like, what's happening each week? Did you guys have like a list of? I mean. Why are we but, talking about LAX? Because I just why, why would it's one of those not. shows that really kind of blows my mind that it was picked up, mm. like that it was made into a television. Mm. I disagree with you. I don't know how you could possibly. I know what I would have done with it. Well, Alex, I'm I, don't know, I don't know why you didn't hire me back in <laughs> yeah. when I was you know, 2007. Uh, whatever it was, I would have rescued. Four. I would have rescued 911. Mm. It made everything that happened in that uh, like the craziest possible shit that could happen in an airport. You know, every week. So there would have been terror attacks. But isn't that kind of what they tried to do? It was. Mm. <laughs> I would have had planes running off runways. I would have had Keanu Reeves in a bus having to shut sure. down the whole airport. Just crazy. So not the terminal, not the movie, the terminal. The opposite of the, the terminal. opposite of the yeah. terminal. Yeah. The Russos did the pilot, though, didn't they? The Russos, yeah. yeah. yeah they got pretty they had won the Emmy for Arrested Development while we were there. Oh, my God. That's so weird. Wait, what a weird thing. That's crazy. So LX is after Arrested Development. <laughs> The Russo brothers. The Russos. Yeah. 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 I'm sure they talk about LAX all the time. The, well, I'm sure it was a big inspiration for Civil War because they had that yeah. big uh, airplane fight on, on the tarmac. Oh, so. yeah. Airplanes yeah. have been a big part of the, all of their – you know, they had the, the stair car. <laughs> the stair – Hop alongs. Yeah. yeah. Heather Locklear in a white jumpsuit screaming, stay off of my runway. <laughs> Are you serious? <laughs> I can't <laughs> – I, there's a, there's a pretty good case to be made, oh, and I'm, I'm not even just joking. I love this so that much. Heather Locklear and Blair Underwood are the two most beautiful people who have ever been on television. Yeah, maybe They're, the two most beautiful people who've ever been at that airport. <laughs> <laughs> Did you shoot sure. it at the airport? We shot it at Ontario. Oh, so the yeah, you can't shut down LAX. You can shut down Ontario. That's really funny. I didn't even think of it like how impossible. Like that's the other. Why did you pick up a show? But how do you shoot at an airport? Remember that show, Mister Sunshine, with Matthew yeah, Perry? Yeah. Where they like they shot it at a that was a stadium, right? He mm-hmm. was. Yeah, they shot it at that uh the one in Englewood. What, what was it called? The Forum. The Forum. Oh really? Oh no, no, it might have been the one in San. No, no, it was in the Forum. They, they, it was supposed to be in San Diego, but it Mr. wasn't. Sunshine. No one was using the Forum. And they shot it at the forum, and they That's like great. took over the forum. All right, this so, is our episode on Snowfalling on Cedars, aka LAX, aka Mister Sunshine. Mister Sunshine, <laughs> do you remember the theme song for that? What? It, no, it, it was great. It was like this. It was like da 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 da, Mister Sunshine, yay! Stop it. Yeah, it was. So I was like, All right. yay. <laughs> so there was another show called Mister Sunshine a few years before that, starring Jeffrey Tambor as a blind man. Oh my god, that, I like that too, oh, man. Television. Alex also told us he didn't watch a lot of TV and didn't have a good memory. <laughs> or watch anything in 99, really. And he's really. pulling out tambour yeah, yeah, deep cuts. I'll, 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 I'll tell you what I did do at the time was at that point in my, in my life, I was writing trivia for a living. Stop it. Really? So I do have a brain for trivia. That's where hilarious. Were, where were you writing trivia? Like in what, uh, what capacity? Um, I had started uh, working as a freelancer for the Trivial Pursuit board game, 
And that was around 98 or so, probably into the early part of 99. And then I had gotten a job. This is what I was doing for work because I was, I was a playwright, which is not really a job. <laughs> <laughs> I had, I had uh, graduated um, uh, from from grad school, from drama school with a degree in playwriting, which is not something I advise yeah. anyone to uh, – It worked out for you though. Uh, yeah, and, and it worked out for everyone. <laughs> uh, I strongly advise you go get a degree in playwriting or better yet, dramaturgy. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and of course you have to pay the bill somehow. Um, and this is what did eventually lead to my going into television, which we can talk about in a second. But, um, but I was paying the bills by writing trivia. So it started with, uh, with, with, um, Trivial Pursuit, and then, uh, I had gotten a job working for, uh, the online component of Jeopardy. So this was okay. early days, but uh, um, at the time, people could sign on and uh, play uh, games of Jeopardy. Not the questions that were on the show itself, but questions that were uh, written specifically for – because they were multiple choice answers. Mm-hmm. So people like me because I did this all the time. Whenever <laughs> there was a new Jeopardy format, a new way to play Jeopardy, You're I would right. do it. All right. Well, <laughs> yes. I, I, I've been a consumer of your products for 20 years. You were part of it. So that was that was what I was doing uh, to, to pay the bill. So so uh, uh, sports trivia specifically was was uh, my thing. But uh, but you know TV and entertainment trivia too. It'd be, it, it's the orange. It's the it's the pink wedge and the orange wedge. Can that, I? Uh, that are okay. Favorite. I want to ask a question about trivia. Trivia is a, a, one of the great loves of my life. What's the key to writing a um, great trivia question? I think it, for me, the, the most fun is a question that you could figure out over time. That you can that you can if you think about it, there's another way in. It might seem yes. impossible at the beginning. Uh, Final Jeopardy questions tend to do that. You know that that in 30 seconds, the initial question might seem impossible, but there's a clue somewhere yeah. in there that allows you a way to sort of suss it out. Those are my favorite ones. There's an elegance to that, and I, I don't say that. Uh, pay, I don't say that like in a patronizing way. I, I get made fun of when I'm in an escape room, for instance, <laughs> for say, for for turning for 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 swatting down people's ideas because I I say it's not elegant enough. Like, like <laughs> it's like there, there's no way someone would go through the the trouble of creating sure. a, an, an escape room puzzle. And have it be like a Take simple, a hammer like, and break it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm like, there's no way that would happen. There's some, there's some elegant solution. I feel that way about a great trivia question. There's an elegant solution to, or kind of not an elegant solution, but just kind of an, an, an elegance to how it's constructed. Um, you could find that like secret door. I like that. Yeah, because the the, the the you either know it or you don't type of questions aren't a whole lot of – what's the capital of Madagascar? Terrible. Is not that much fun no. if, you, if you don't know it or if you do know it even. I mean it's it, – you know it in two seconds or, you know, there's no hope. That's not great trivia. Right. There's other other questions that are, yeah. you know, kind of, kind of more fun. So in 99 mm. – <clears throat> where were you living I in could do a, I could do a podcast just going Talking about through, trivia? Go, no, go I, through I, Alex's I, career. I agree. This is fun. I, I – all right. No, go ahead. We're very lucky to have him here. <laughs> what's what's the uh, most populous one-syllable city in the world? Oh, here we go. The most populous one city in the world? One-syllable one syllable city, city in the world? world? See, that's that's kind of, to me, a fun question because you can sit and sort of think about right. it. It's, a, it's nothing, nothing better than nah, a know, podcast so, of silence it's and people so thinking. It's so stupid. I, I, the, I, the right move is just to give you the top the, – the, the, the first thing that came to my head. I mean just because we're on a podcast and we're – Burn was the first thing that came to my head. Yeah. Perth. No. 
I know the answer to America. Do you? No, it's very hard in America. I know, I know it, but I know what it is. Do you really? Because I've heard this before. Okay. Flint. That's correct. Yes. Wow. But, um, <laughs> but, but I don't know what it is in the world. I feel like I'm missing something. The, the, the only Are trick, you going to tell us? The only trick to this is that in its native language, it's, it's two syllables, which is soru. Oh. And soul. In, oh, um, that makes sense. In, in, uh, <laughs> Well, it's a major world city. I'm going yeah. like Perth, so yeah. like yeah, which is you know, the most remote city in the world, the ro- most remote major city in the world. Is that true? Perth, in, in terms, terms, of, terms, of, terms of, of how far getting to as how far uh, it is cities. from the next major city. Huh. Yeah. My friend went to uh, veterinary school in Perth. Most yeah. remote veterinarian school, veterinary is. school in the world. So in 1989, <laughs> where where are you living in 99, Alex? Uh, West Hollywood, California. Um, do you? remember seeing anything in 99 are there any films that jumped out at you in 99 i mean other than i mean there's the big ones there's the matrixes your star wars your you know the various uh big ones but was there one that stuck with you i was thinking about this because i i remember seeing a lot of those movies after the fact right either on cable mm-hmm. uh, remember when people used to have cable yeah uh or uh or uh on um uh dvd mm-hmm. remember when people used to have dvds yeah um, but in a theater, I don't remember going to see a lot of movies in 2000. I did, um, because by 2000, I had moved to San Francisco okay. and I lived right next to a movie theater. So I went a lot, but 99, I don't know if I did. Where uh, are you from? Uh, originally from uh, New York and New Jersey. <sighs> Kenny, stop. Where, where, where in New York and New Jersey? Um, uh, Chinatown for the uh, first few years of my life. Then I went to high school in the Bronx. We lived in North Jersey in Bergen County. Did you go to Bronx Science? I went to Horace Mann. Oh, cool. Yeah. It's, it's not, there's nothing Kenny loves more than a guest New York that comes stuff? from New York, Jersey. Well, I know. I know so many people who went to Horace Mann. Where did you go to high school? I'm from Chappaqua. Oh, okay. So okay. a guy from Horace Mann is giving me looks about <laughs> I thought you went to high school in New York City. Yeah. I went to high school in the Bronx, by the way. Uh-huh. It's the equivalent of like I went to a, sc- a small school in Boston. <laughs> you know? <laughs> the Bronx, it's, it's Riverdale. <laughs> it's Riverdale. That's why when you said the Bronx, I thought the Bronx mean Science, streets of The mean because streets. Because that's actually of, uh, the Bronx. But you went to school in South Westchester. <laughs> Basically South <laughs> Yonkers, yeah. Um, well, South yeah, – that's, that's true. South Westchester is pretty mean. Hmm. That's amazing. That's amazing. So what 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 got you to the West Coast? <clears throat> um I I had uh, gone to a grad school. I went to a small drum school in Connecticut. And <laughs> <Yeah>. uh <laughs> and my my options were to to go to New York yeah. and uh where my parents had set a trap for me. They had uh they had built a, a an apartment right above the noodle shop. Where they they run the noodle shop for about twenty years, uh, but at the time they had it for about ten, um, which was completely new, totally furnished, ready to go. Yeah. Except <laughs> it was right above my parents' noodle shop. <laughs> it's like free apartment in New York, amazing. Oh. It it it. Uh, neither my sister nor I took the bait. Oh, good for you. But if we were to, we would have to. We had had to live there. But the other option was you had to go somewhere else. Mm-hmm. So I went to L.A. Uh, n- not with an eye towards uh, the entertainment industry. I was fully committed to, uh, to to doing theater. Really? Yeah. 
in Los Angeles. <clears throat> in L- <laughs> <laughs> there is a ton of theater. There is a ton of is, free theater yeah. in, in L.A. Uh, but uh, as it turns out, uh, from L.A., you could uh, go to a whole bunch of other places. Right. And, uh, and that's what got you to San Francisco? Um, no, I got yeah. to San Francisco because uh, uh, I had been laid off. Uh, the, the entire division of that Jeopardy Online, all of that had, had fallen apart. Um, because it had been bought by another video game company. Okay. Um, and uh, there was a big company, uh, video game company, that was hiring up in the Bay Area. And it was the, it was in the midst of the dot-com boom. And they were hiring anyone, no matter how unqualified they right. were. Which, of course, that qual- – that, that- that pool me. Yeah, sure, that sure. pool really includes me. Um, I had absolutely no idea how to produce video games, uh, apart from the fact that I enjoyed playing them. I was really into playing video games, but that's the same fallacy as you know, you really enjoy eating, therefore you can cook, be a chef. <laughs> you know, I could vouch for that one. Right, not right. quite the same thing. Uh, but I didn't discover that until I got to San Francisco, and I, I spent a year working in the video game business and failing miserably, uh, and uh, ran out of money and came back to LA. And then, so how, how did how did TV happen for you? I, I mean, obviously, a lot of television shows hire playwrights. I mean, that's uh-huh. a pretty mm-hmm. common thing. So, was it sort of a people read your stuff? And I, I will say there was one other TV show that I worked on that's not on my resume anywhere at all. My first actual technical job in television was on the TV show The Weakest Link. <laughs> oh, now you're now you're talking Kenny's <laughs> language. The Weakest Link is the worst game show there is. It's a terrible, terrible it's concept. The, it's the worst. It's the worst. <laughs> I hate it so it's, much. It, it's it's Survivor, right? You know, you, the, it's not a merit based game. The 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 strength of winning at The Weakest Link. Now we're presuming that if you're listening to this, you know how The Weakest Link. There's no point in us. Explaining All people it. know is you are the, you weakest, are the weakest Link. link. <laughs> well, I mean, I know because I watched every episode until. They oh figured out. I mean, you're you're going. You, when I said it's the worst game show, you knew exactly where I was going. The goal is always to be the second smartest person there. So, it took like ten episodes for people to figure that out. But once they figured out that the goal is to not be the smartest person, mm-hmm. the game was ruined. Right. At least in Survivor, which I'm a huge uh, fan of, in love with. That's Machiavellian. Part, yeah, yeah, part of the game started to be how you hide your strengths, mm-hmm. but. And it's more than just answering trivia questions in half an hour. But yeah, the weakest link I think is one of the worst formats in the history of television. Uh, I think that that's been borne out to be true. Yeah, yeah. Um, but so how uh, long did you work on that for? I worked on that for for two seasons. I probably have wow. done more episodes of The Weakest Link than I probably will in any show in my yeah. career. I did something like a hundred and some odd, you know, one hundred and fifty episodes of The Weakest Link. I was a researcher on. That. Oh, okay. Um, and uh, we were uh, tasked to look up because it was a it was a very fast paced question answer format. So you had to be prepared for anything someone might say, mm-hmm. whether you would and oh sure yeah whether you would accept that or not accept that. So we got into the most granular, absurd answers. Possible because it, it, I, I, I'm telling the story because it gets. To, it, there's actually sure. a point at the yeah. end of this. There was a question about, and they were tended to be very easy questions because you wanted to snap through and you didn't want people missing eight questions in a row. So there was a very easy question uh, that said, uh, 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 "Antarctic is the home to which pole?" Okay, and <laughs> and that seemed an easy enough question to research. But in addition to that, we had to research whether there were any Polish people. 
who lived oh. on Antarctica, in case someone blurted out Kowalski. <laughs> <laughs> in the middle of being asked, Antarctica is the home to which pole. <laughs> Could you That's imagine? fantastic. That's great. Which no one ever did, but we had to be make sure. Apparently, there were no poles living in Antarctica. There were some Austrians. <laughs> <laughs> That's so answer. good. You asked, great. Eventually, you do enough of that, and you ask, what am I doing yeah, with How did myself? I get here? How, oh. How did this happen? We've all had those moments. Oh, sure. A dark night of the soul yeah. as you're oh working God. on The Weakest Link. So many dark, sure. dark nights of the soul. Yeah. I, want, so, I have one more question about The Weakest Link because I always wanted to – I always was curious here. At some point during the run of The Weakest Link, uh, Wink, Weakest Link, which I pretty much watched every episode. How many episodes were there? Keep talking. Who was the host? What was her name? Uh, Ann Robinson. And then there was a syndicated version where George Gray, who is now the Price is Right announcer, uh, was the host. So I'm referring to the Ann Robinson version. Mm -hmm. She stopped being kind of mean and started like being kind of sad. (laughs) Where where she realized that the format was failing in front of her Mm. and she started shaming everybody because it stopped being – she started saying, have the courage to vote out the weakest link, which felt to me like she knew that Please. she was residing over Makes a, no sense. A, a fit. the only thing she had at this point was, 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 was shame, was guilting these poor people into like – you've been voting out the actual weakest link as opposed to voting out the person who could beat him in the final round. What's kind of amazing about the weakest link is it was it – was, it burned bright very quickly. Yeah. Because it's a it's it a, was it's a loud it noisy catchphrase. Yeah. It was it was a catch, and it, it's just because I remember how big a deal that show was. But to think that it only ran for two seasons is and, pretty incredible. And then syndicated for another two. I think. Yeah, it's yeah, it syndicated. It was on NBC for two. Then it syndicated for two. Three hundred twenty-four syndicated episodes, eighty-three on NBC. I'm telling you, but the like, reason this this didn't work is because people were on to this. I'm sure format failure. Yeah, it's impossible to play along and understand what, and, and root for people when the goal for Seventy-five percent of the game is to is to not like engage, not really. be good, yeah, yeah. And then the goal at the end is to is to show how good you are. So yeah. it's it's not a particularly fun thing to watch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. I thought it was very simple that th- there could have been a, an easy rule tweak that if you were statistic because they always mention who statistically the strongest link was. You, that if you were the strongest link, you had immunity. You I, I you agree with that. Up. I thought, yeah. and <laughs> then there would be an incentive to ha- be the you smartest person up there. Yeah. I can't wait till you two make a game show together. It's going to be great. I, I, I love game. I still love game shows. I mean, Kenny loves game shows. Uh, let's uh, let's hang out <laughs> soon. So, um, Snow Falling on Cedars. Oh yeah, which we should probably talk about a little bit. Um, I I, I, I went us, through a lot. Of, yes, give us some context. I'm going to give context. So, yeah. so the synopsis for for people who have not read the book or seen the movie, uh, and this is so I I Google the synopsis and Googled sometimes writes very strange ones. <laughs> this happens to be very poetic. Fog as thick and palpable as cotton hangs suspended over San Pedro Island. On the bay, a flickering lantern signals distress from a kip- crippled fishing boat, where elsewhere a freighter lurches blindly through the chalky mist. This is crazy. Uh, by morning, sea and sky are clear, but the tranquil village of fishermen and berry farmers will forever be changed, for one man has lost his life, and another, a childhood friend, has been charged with taking it. An investigation is launched. The trial begins. So that's the synopsis mm-hmm. of this film. Uh, but it's also kind of not. It's really sort of a love story between um, Ishmael Chambers, played by Ethan Hawke, uh, who's a local newspaper editor in a small Pacific Northwest town, and Hatsu 
Miyamoto, a daughter of Japanese Americans. They meet at the time of Pearl Harbor, where feelings run high against local Asians. Ishmael's father, played by Sam Shepard, runs editorials. Um, and nine years later, Ishmael is a reporter at a paper covering the murder trial of her husband. Um, yeah, that's kind of that's mm-hmm. that's a more sort of uh, specific. The uh, Snowfalling on Cedars opened on December twenty second, nineteen ninety nine, in fifty first place. It was platformed against Any Given Sunday, The Town of Mr. Ripley, Angela's Ashes, Galaxy Quest, and Man on the Moon. It's a hell of a weekend. Mm-hmm. Uh, it only made thirty eight thousand dollars in its opening weekend. It would go on to make twenty three million on a thirty five million dollar budget. It has forty percent on Rotten Tomatoes from critics and sixty eight percent from audiences. Which I guess sort of feels right, and this kind of gets to the heart of the 68 my sixty eight doesn't. I, well, okay. The, the the crux of my sort of issues with this movie are that I think its greatest attribute is also the reason why it doesn't work as a movie. And I think that I actually really like the broken sort of fractured narrative of it. I think that the, the stylistic choice that Ron Bass, the screenwriter, chose to take what in the book is a relatively straight line from what I've heard. I have not read the book. Mm-hmm. It's linear in its storytelling. This is told in sort of the fractured memories of a time gone by and a relationship between the two main leads and these sort of star-crossed lovers, if you will, in this time where they were not allowed to be together. Um, that in itself, I think, is interesting. But the way that it's told actually makes it so that I can't invest in these characters because I don't actually know the the pieces. So – it's sort of a curse and a blessing is sort of what I'm getting at. I think there's something very interesting here that is executed in a way that I think is very impressionistic, very sort of Terrence Malick-esque, which I appreciate and I and I like stuff like that. So I found myself taken with that but then also completely emotionally unengaged with what's actually transpiring. But Terrence Malick didn't do a courtroom drama. You know, <laughs> like plot is, is, is yes. important. Yes. What it felt like – to me, in a way, was that because the the pace of the filmmaking was so um, methodical mm-hmm. that uh, that they had written too much. So, at some point in the editorial room, um, <laughs> someone figured, "Wait, this is an eight-hour movie. Yeah. We're going to have to find a way to cut this way the hell down." Yeah. Had you seen this before? A, a million years ago. Okay. Now. All right. <clears throat> Have no, you read the book? No follow-up. Yes. Did you like the book? I, it was a big book. I, I I have almost no memory of of plots of books. My memory of the book was that it was a sort of very slow contemplative read. Yeah. Um, Which is I, the movie I, too. I, I wish my I wish my memory for plot. I, I have a friend of mine who was uh, horrified once when I when we were talking and and I said to her, Gatsby dies. <laughs> 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 just completely, completely left my memory. All I have is sort of the impression. I remember the impression. I'm similar to you. Yeah, in, I, I don't remember Gatsby died until right now either. Books are and, – and I don't know if this is I, – I guess I just don't – I'm actually this way with lyrics as well. They kind of go through my brain and I kind of – I'm left with sort of feelings rather mm-hmm. than actual plot details if that makes any sense, which, which again actually – does translate well in this movie like this movie is a is a series of feelings but it's also to your point a courtroom drama and the courtroom drama elements of it which is also proven by the fact that there isn't a murder at the end like it's just your it's it's so antithetical to how we watch movies which i respect 
that they tried to do this with a studio movie. It's just, and then on top of it all, and, and I'm curious, obviously, to your thoughts about this. I think the score is fucking horrible. I think I've yet to see a movie that we've done thus far that is crippled by its score. Like it, mm. it is smothering this entire fucking movie. And as you know, score tells an audience how to feel in yeah. a lot of ways. And this movie is telling you to feel, I guess, sad all the time. And, you know, it's dripping with strings and corals shit. And you're just like, I, I it's, it really hurts the movie. I'm curious because you guys have seen so many movies in that period. Where are we in 1999 in the art of film scoring? Where, like, how advanced are we? We're at the end of this kind of James Newton Howard era. We are. It, it's yeah. I mean, there there are some that are like this. Yeah. That feel like they uh, belong in the late 80s, early 90s. Yeah. Um, and then there are some that are it's kind like your of- Thomas Newmans who are sort of kind of like I think Thomas Newman is one of those kind of chameleon. Type of and a little uh, transitional, yeah. a little transitional. I mean, American Beauty is, I was is say, a the, big, the big score of, of ninety nine, or, or at least in this sort of milieu. Uh, the, the, that's the best thing American Beauty does. <laughs> no, it is, <laughs> yes, but yeah. by a long shot, to sure. me, is like kind of it's kind of presenting a different way to score a movie. Yeah, and then the, the one in my head is like Run Lola Run. Which um, is an incredible Which score. is a different kind of thing. And, and then Fight Club with Dust Brothers. With Dust Brothers and, and, and Magnolia, you have, uh, you have, um, kind of song uh, score. John Bryan's yeah. score there. It's, it's, we are in a, in a, in a bit of a transitionary period. I would, I would agree with that. This score to me feels like it's scoring a different movie. There's moments in there where the score, it feels funny. Yeah. Where you laugh out loud because of what the score is trying to tell you to do. It's funny because Janet uh, Maslin's uh, review in the New York Times, she said, Snow Falling on Cedars may be dramatically inert, but it is well acted and it succeeds in sustaining a mood of spellbound, ref- of spellbound reflection. The endless swirling snow, the blue lit fog and the rain forest with its dripping evergreens evoke a brooding interior landscape where memory and reflection loom solemnly over the present. But even this mood is undermined by James Newton Howard's bombastic score, which suggests the romantic minimalism of Michael Naiman encrusted with heavenly vocal choirs. The overwrought score is the final lethal touch in a movie that buckles under the weight of its own pretensions. Kind of a fair assessment. Now, Ebert loved it. Gave it three and a half out of four stars. It was a a glowing (laughs) review. Um, And an interesting one, and I'll I'll read a little bit from it in a bit, but I, I think that the score... I really do think cripples this film. Um, and, and had it been scored by somebody different and, and who, who knows, you know how stuff like this goes where it's like a composer's brought in because they think, and you just, you never know whether or not they're actually on the same page. And this just feels like they're not on the same page. They feel like they're making, and by they, I mean, Scott Hicks is making one film and, and James Newton Howard is scoring a different one. But the, I don't know. The pictures are pretty slow too. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Even if you watch it with the sound off. You know, the, which it's gorgeous. The, the, it's visually yeah. really, really beautiful. Um, the exteriors are gorgeous. Yeah, I can't think of anything drabber yes. than the interiors in this movie. I yeah. hate the courtroom, the courtroom, yeah. and the the homes, and yeah. even the boats at night. Like, I, there's dark wood. I watched this. I watched the first half of this. Uh, you know, it, it feels like the kind of movie that you should watch on the biggest screen possible. I agree. So I watched the first half. I have a projector, so I watched the first half on, oh, the, wow. on a projector at home. And uh, it was really hard to it was really hard to stomach the the courtroom stuff. You couldn't see shit, mm-hmm. um, and it did nothing. So I mean, the that's interesting. It it didn't serve to highlight how beautiful the exteriors were to me. It just felt like 
put a little more effort into making this courtroom stuff look like it. Well, um, I thought that the I I, I, I mean there's also so much close up in there too. It's a lot of close ups in in the courtrooms mm-hmm. that I felt like there was no sense of place. I had a really hard time with like spatial geography. On, in the interior, I think that's. I mean, truthfully, that's sort of throughout the entire film. Also, which, in the cave and everything. It feels, yes. it feels intentional, though. Whether or not it's it's effective, it does feel like he is like Scott Hicks is trying to keep you discombobulated in time. I mean, it, it does feel like that is now. There's some sort of hallmarks, you know. Sometimes Ethan Hawke has an arm and sometimes he doesn't, for instance. <laughs> so, you know, there's ways of knowing where you are in time. But it, it's – to, yeah. to Kenny's point yeah. about uh, about being in so tight, it took me about three-quarters of the way into the movie before I realized, oh, he's missing an arm. Yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah. They there, don't really there was it. one shot later. Like I think about three-quarters in where you do see like the half arm. Yeah. Yeah. But um, before that – you think he's a two-armed guy. You really It's an do. assumption that the yeah. viewer makes that people have two arms. <laughs> I, I, I had – It's true. It's so funny because I had like read on Wikipedia that he has one arm. Yeah. And it's, even having known that, mm-hmm. I don't – I remember like halfway through being like, wow, I don't think I've ever seen this half an arm. Oh, no. They At some point, he loses the arm. They show him yeah. losing the yeah. – They show the arm being handed They show off. just – And he says something terrible as he's being put under yeah. too. Yeah, he does. Um, I, I, <clears throat> I don't know yeah. why. But he I does. don't either. There's a lot of stuff in it. I, I would I would argue that one of the failings of this film is Ishmael's character. Hmm. Um, and and I actually I, I quite like Ethan Hawke as an actor. The best. I think he's great. Uh, he doesn't really get much to do in this movie, and it feels he feels like a passenger as opposed to an integral part of the story, um, which is a bummer. <clears throat> it's not a. Bummer to me in that it's a really, really wonky, lame, weird, wrong way into the story. Uh, sure, the, you're, you're speaking of the the, no, the cultural, not, not the issues. white guy part <clears throat> so much, though. That's an issue too that like we can get into the um, the reporter part. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the reporter yeah. having such a interest in this so i basically look there it doesn't seem like a reporter there i don't really do much reporting I'll, I'll put it out there. i don't like this movie very much this is basically an attempt to do like um to kill a mockingbird right i think it's the, the story in story that score is very similar down to at the end all the asian mm-hmm. people in the in the courtroom bowing right. to ethan hawk like how all the how all the african-americans stand for um, um gregory peck at yeah. the end and there's a Atticus, yeah. Well, yeah, for Atticus, that's right. So at the end, I mean, there's there's a difference, but um, I think in this movie, it's so wedged in this idea that this r- random white guy is involved with this trial, and then furthermore, in To Kill a Mockingbird, he's motivated by like fairness and humanity and dignity where in this movie i'm pretty sure he's motivated by like lust and regret and guilt and guilt yeah. and and nothing that's particularly um particularly altruistic and, and he's or, he's prevented from helping her by spite for a good deal cuz he sits on right, this yes. information right yeah cuz he gets it very early he gets it very early. last minute yes and then they bow to him. And then like, they bow to him. Bow to him. Yeah, it's crazy. It's and that's then, I mean, yeah. And then you end. I mean, you end with this idea that, like, if not for 
the 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 prejudices of the time. This is your one true pairing, which undermines the entire movie to me. Well, it's, I mean, it's a movie that's sort of it's 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 brimming with a lot of ideas. I think to a certain degree. I mean, I, I it's it's hard not to in the current climate that we live in to know that there are immigrants in cages as we speak and not see the parallels of what's going on in this film in to a certain degree. I see the parallels yeah. of what happened in that period of time. Sure. And the parallel what's happening in this period of sure. time. I don't see any I don't see any interesting argument being made in that film except for like I would agree with that. I mean except for like <clears throat> prejudice is bad. Not that that's interesting. Well, it's, I think the movie's less about prejudice, more about perception. It seems to be about suspicion. It seems to be more about, you know, quote unquote, the other. The other thing, the other. <laughs> but point, I could be wrong. The other point I want to make that's like, if you actually break it down, all right, so the the guy wasn't murdered. Carl wasn't ultimately murdered. Mm-hmm. No, he just, but, what's he that? just fell. He just fell, but like. <laughs> well, he could have fell. Yeah, we don't actually. I mean, there is evidence that it's possible <laughs> he could have felt, which was just enough for the just, judge to yeah, dismiss the throw whole, out the right. whole case. It's based on the the what the facts that were presented. Yes. It's not insane to think Kazuo did this. No, no, no. like he no. is the he's the right man to put on trial for this crime, <laughs> which seems like a crime. So this is not a this is not a Tequilavakaver situation. Yeah. The same way. So it's true. So I, the crime, very briefly, is that yeah, there's a, a Japanese fisherman who has a grudge against this white fisherman, and they were on the boat at the same time the night of, and then the next morning, the white fisherman is found, you know, uh, uh, in dead, his, yeah. dead mm-hmm. in his net, and so the Japanese. Uh, 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 Japanese American fisherman is uh, is put on trial, um, and what uh, our Ethan Hawke character discovers is that it is plausible that he could have fallen off because there was another larger boat that could have sailed within five minutes of his boat and possibly caused it to tilt over at a point when that white fisherman might have been up. On the mast and could have fallen. I mean, it is. It, it does seem as though they're kind of telling us that's what happened. What's the, the par with the um with the 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 clock? I mean, the watch. Well, he felt his watch stopped at, at a, a certain time at eleven forty-seven. Um, <laughs> to suggest that that's when he fell in the and water. I, and I assume Kazuo's was on a yes. security camera or something. <laughs> no, with Kazuo, it? No. we have no idea. <laughs> Japanese American fishermen, we have no yeah, idea. Yeah. But we we know that 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 other uh, um, Carl, the, the the larger boat, the, oh yes, sir, the yeah. freighter, freighter yeah. came came by around eleven forty two. Yeah. So within five minutes, it could have caused enough of a wake to tip him over. I mean, it's uh, this. It's, it's weird because all of the sort of the delineation of all this information feels like it's from a. It feels like it's from a different movie. Like the movie just to me wants to be a mood tone piece. Like it wants to be sort of this about 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 love and prejudice and all yes. these things. Like that's what it wants to be because it only gets into that plot in the last. It like, 10 jams minutes. it in in the last yes. ten minutes, really. So it's not really interested in doing that. Um, it's just kind of like oh, and he fell and then it's over. It's just a little. So it maybe you know there we've done a few movies like this. You mentioned Angel's Ashes, yes. Um, to prestige me, movies, well, prestige movies, yeah, right? Yeah. Like um, uh, Cider House Rules is kind of the the yeah. one that 
The clicked, quote unquote. Yeah, it clicked in its own way. We hated it, but it clicked in its own (laughs) way. It's awful. It it clicked in its own way, but they're all, all these movies, these movies basically used to be like four out of five Oscar nominees, and by 1989, they were one out of five, maybe two if you want to call the Green Mile one as well. So two out of five, I would say. Sure. Which is Green Mile's, I guess, also in one that clicked. Uh Um, but, what it, what's interesting about those movies? Green Mile, Cider House Rules, Angel, Angel's Ashes. I would include Anna the King. Those are like kind of um, <laughs> middle brow movies. You so know, they're studio plays. Studio plays, yeah. but a lot of you know, tell don't show. Yeah. A lot of you know, a lot of this is important. A lot of James Newton Howard type scores. A lot, of, yeah. a lot of indicators of prestige without actually having to make the audience do any real work. Mm-hmm. I don't consider this the same. This movie's actually makes its audience work. A is, lot of work. Like this yeah. is not really a middle brow movie. This is I agree. this is trying to be something greater than that. Um and I think it falls flat, but I give it more credit I mean for for I think it works a little better than you do, but I think we're both on the same page that to attempt this is something. I mean, Scott Hicks is coming off say, of Shine. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um a movie I have not seen since 94. I saw it in 90, 96. I think it's 96, 96 and I, I remember it came seeing out. it in theaters when it came Same. out. Same. Yeah. And I remember thinking it was good and I I've, I've never gone back to it. Sure. Um why would you ever go back to? It? Well, I just I don't know. Just just, just to be compl- a Scott Hicks <laughs> Scott Hicks fan. <laughs> it's it so he does that in 96 and then this is 99. So it's it's his follow up to a significant Oscar movie. Um, and it comes with that element of prestige. You can tell he's chasing, you know, it's, it's an award-winning book. It's a big book. It's, it's got all of the, it's checking all the boxes. It's got a deep bench of amazing character actors in this movie. Yeah. I mean, Wait, many of them are wasted. What, what did yes. I text you? <laughs> I, Kenny I, texted me. I, I mean, you, you, can, you can I'll say just it. say it. Yeah. I, I texted him. I can't, <laughs> I said, I can't believe Sam Shepard, James Cromwell, James Rebhorn. Max, uh, Max Vecito. Well, well, not Max Vecito. James Rebhorn and Richard Jenkins, Richard Jenkins. are all in the same movie and they're not playing Max von Sydow's quadruplets. <laughs> <laughs> We're all in this? Yeah. Where there's all, we all get a roll in We this? all get a roll? Cause I, pic- I, I picture the four, those four guys being in the same casting call for the last 20 years and be like, who are you reading for? Wait, we're reading for four different characters? There can't be four of us in this movie. It's amazing. Max von Sydow was awesome oh, in this he, movie. The, he yeah. should have been, he could, he's great. Not should have been nominated, he could have been nominated and I think everyone would have been fine. Yes. Um, and Jenkins is playing kind of, you know, beta Jenkins. He it's plays a, like one or the other is alpha or beta. It's a little before the Jenkins thing hit anyway. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and Rebhorn is always Rebhorn. Rebhorn's and, great. And Cromwell doesn't get much to do. But you know. This, it's so funny because uh, this sure morning I turn on my TV um, and Carlito's Way is playing and James Reborn is the is the attorney that's, try, that's trying to put him away. It's like he just <laughs> yeah. played that guy. <laughs> All this guy is doing in his movies is actually trying to put criminals away and he's always... <laughs> And he's, he, he's such a, a he's such a virtuous guy, and he's always the the villain. The villain, the it's villain so is prosecutor. It's like. so true. Uh, but yeah, so 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 Scott Hicks never really gets the thread back. And it's if you look at his career, you know, it's this, it's. Uh, he has no reservations. He does. Uh, he t- recently did the lucky one, which was a, I believe a. Um, <laughs> Uh, what's his face? Why am I drawing a blank? Uh, I don't um, remember the lucky one. What's the lucky, lucky one? one was a. I think it was an adaptation. Uh, what's the guy? The oh my god! Uh, it's Zac Efron, and it's uh, whatever. It doesn't matter. Um, anyway, Scott Hicks did sort of a bunch of movies and has yet to sort of really connect again. And I don't know if that's just choices of projects or what the case might be, but it's kind of a bummer because I I I I watch this film and I see. 
a filmmaker who's taking some swings and is trying to sort of find a lane within the studio system to do interesting sort of bold things. And this film might not work on mass, but I think we can all agree that it's trying something. Is it possible he's not that good? I mean, sure, that's always possible. Because like, <laughs> no, it's like, because like, I mean, clearly that's possible. Like, you remember Sean, but you remember Sean because of Jeff Rush's performance, right? I don't remember anything else about Sean. Period. I don't remember anything about the story. You don't remember Noah Taylor in it? <sighs> no, apparently not. No, I didn't even realize he was in it. Um, Plays young uh, Jeffrey Rush. And, oh, he must have been very young. Um, Hearts in Atlanta. He tri- that was that was after that was two years after this, mm-hmm. and that's him trying again. Prestige. Anthony Hopkins, you know, Stephen King book. Yeah. Didn't work. That's kind of really, then it's like no reservations and then it's, that's it. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it. It's, it's not like Shine was some, I don't know. I'm mean, again, I haven't seen this in 25 years almost. So, but it's not like, and I was 14 at the time. Sure. But it's not like Shine is remembered for being some great movie. Great movie yeah, or, great you know, some hallmark of filmmaking. It's a great performance. And it is a great performance to give the guy an entire career, you know? It did. It did. I mean, so I'm sort of looking back a little bit before pre-Shine just to have a sense of sort of where Scott Hicks kind of – he did a lot of music videos, a lot of in excess music videos. Yeah, for I figured, what a, lot of, a lot of Australians, um, I would imagine. Yeah, I would imagine so they didn't leave Australia until the Oscars. A lot of Austra- – yeah. He did a TV show briefly. You know, he did some – he did – yeah. It's, it's just – If you're doing music videos in Australia – in the 90s, you're doing an excess video. After the minute works, you're doing Ka- Kylie McNogue. <laughs> yeah, <and laughs> yeah, fair enough. But it's it, it's just I don't know. It's it's interesting to sort of think about this movie and how kind of clunky and weird and 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 sort of esoteric it is within the studio system at the time. And you, I just this is not a movie that Universal would make today. Not in this way, anyway. Mm-hmm. Anyone would make no right. I mean, again, the IP is something, I guess, mm-hmm. and maybe that that would help to a certain degree. But yeah, it's just it's sort of a, a weird kind of thing that 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 is kind of I don't know. I'm kind of impressed by it in a weird way. I don't I, know. Well, all right, so let's talk about the fact that you wouldn't make this movie, not like this anyway, without a single Asian person involved in the production. Anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. Anywhere. If you look at it, I'm talking about the writers, director, all the producers, production designer, cinematographer, editor. I looked down the whole thing because I found it hard to believe that you could make this movie without any Asian influence behind the camera. So that's one thing. The only Asian people involved in the production are the people who are on camera. Um, And and they're not billed particularly – I mean they're billed – Pretty tenth, tenth. Yeah. You know. Isn't she built second? No, she's really? not. Oh, she is on the – she is somewhere. She, she's, maybe on I mean, Wikipedia. She's, yeah, yeah. I don't know. She's on the poster. She's, she's on, the, on poster. the poster. Well, she's very pretty. She, I mean – so Alex, what do you how, – how did you feel about the, the actual way that it – I mean in, in context of your show to mm-hmm. a certain degree, how do you feel this show, this movie executed that sort of portion of history? Do you feel as though it was – 
I mean, I don't think it was disrespectful necessarily, but I don't know how respectful it was either. So the, so. the show that we're doing, for those who, who yes. haven't seen it, and what, there's about 7 billion people on the planet. Yeah. So, yeah, so. 6.999 billion people <laughs> who could be not seen this have not seen the yeah. terror infamy. Uh, but it is, you know, it is the, the story of uh, the incarceration of, uh, of Japanese Americans uh, with the ghost story uh, at the center of it. Uh, but we're trying to tell this story – in as much detail as we have time for in in, in those uh, in those ten episodes, and we had a majority uh, Asian American writers' room. We had uh, a majority um, Asian American and Pacific Islander slate of directors, and we had a cast where every single uh, Japanese uh, and Japanese American character was was played by uh, an actor of Japanese ancestry, which I think makes a difference. Uh, it might not have been possible <laughs> uh, you know, right. five or ten years ago, uh, and we never got any pushback from telling this from a Japanese American point of view. Yeah, you know, we have. In in contrast, our show you have to go very far down the cast list before you get to a white actor. Um, and uh, that seems appropriate if we're telling the story of the internment or the incarceration uh, because it's a Japanese-American story. So you know, you, it, the character's point of view should be you know, Japanese-American. Um, you can make the argument in this movie that it is a romance uh, – drama about a small town that only sort of kisses up against the historical experience. Um, I think that's a shame if you're going to be addressing a real, the greatest trauma of an entire people to just sort of kiss up against it. And that may have been the excuse 20 years ago of not getting into very much detail about it, not having – uh, you know, fully formed characters, not uh, um, spending very much time about the experience because they're just kind of there. We don't know how they feel about it. Mm-hmm. You know, there's there, there's a few nice scenes about uh, about uh, the property being taken away, um, uh, which which is a nice piece of detail. And there is uh, some lovely non dialogue scenes. Uh, where you see all the Japanese Americans carrying the suit, the, the, their two suitcases each, and being you know, uh, marched off to the buses, so it's there in pieces. But you know what you learn about the entire experience is it's kind of they, they kind of just coast past really it. sketchy. So uh, even if you were to take it as a kind of ro- drama romance. Um, it's it, it's pretty slow and uh, and 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 you don't really feel very much for the character as much as you say the Ishmael character isn't uh, that fully formed or problematic in the sense that you know he only does what he he only saves the day because he can get over his own personal spite. Mm-hmm. Uh, for quite the white savior, yeah, yeah, for 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 you know a girl he loved who you know was in an internment camp for God's sakes. Yeah. <laughs> I, I could yeah. understand how she might break up with him, you know. Um, but but the the Japanese American characters um, are are paper paper thin. Yeah, there's very very. Uh, and and it it suggests to me at least that in the writing of it, you know, there wasn't not really that comfortable understanding the culture. So let's just uh, just get the most basic stuff out there. Um, uh, 
George Takei, I know, specifically has a big problem with uh, the Hatsui character being played by a Japanese actress and not a Japanese-American actress because this, in many ways, is kind of one of the big points of, of the internment is that you had people born in the United States, which Hatsui I'm, almost certainly is, um, who are American, culturally American – and not at all culturally Japanese, mm-hmm. being rounded up by their own government and being mistaken for people who are loyal to the emperor of Japan. Yeah. So there is a divide uh, both culturally, linguistically uh, uh, between the Nisei generation who are born in the United States and the Issei generation, the immigrant generation. But in casting a Japanese actress who has a Japanese accent – and whose mannerisms are very classically Japanese and not at all American, um, that gets completely muddled. You you don't you – know, uh, this, this is <laughs> – George has, uh, has objected to this many, many times. So I'm just <laughs> no, no. What, I, what, what, what he's saying, um, you know, that it's all conflated in this, in this movie that all the Japanese are kind of, you know, one. The, the, the exception to this – and played by a Korean actor, is uh, is Kazuo, who feels a little more, at least when he's given a chance to speak, feels a little more assertively American. He does. Yeah. Uh, um, he, does, yeah. He, he, he served he's in... Co- he's Native Korean or he's Korean-American? Korean-American he's, actor. Yeah, he's seen Korean, yes. Yeah, and he feels more American. And that's what yeah. it kind of should be with Hatsui as well, that, that she yeah. feels, I'm an American. Mm-hmm. Why, why take me away and put me... I have no connection you know to or loyalty to the people who bombed pearl harbor so that i think that, that the, is like absolutely agree with that I think, that I think that all makes absolute sense and and it it you have to wonder what the motivation was on their part when it came to casting her i'm assuming it was not favorable it, i mean well, it, i it, think it's, it's i think it's more of a superficial thing is sort of yeah, well i mean like the, we we these arguments these discussions come up a lot mm-hmm um, they come up a lot now, and, and now I think to some extent the talent pool is diverse enough where you can find good actors or you've, you have actors with credits of all backgrounds. And I'm not excusing this. It's really more of an open question, which is basically um, in some instances when we – you know we talked about Boys Don't Cry with, with Scott um, – What's Scott's last name? Whatever. (laughs) Oh, well. We'll get it. We'll get it. With Scott, his point was basically um, trans trans characters should be played by trans actors because – essentially because that's – you know, those roles were written for those people and uh, not so much that they're the only people who could embody that character, but until – we have a Scott Turner. Scott Turner. Scott Turner Schofield, right? Mm-hmm. Until we have enough people who um, have kind of until un, until enough trans actors have, have been allowed to play these trans roles, yeah. we really should not be giving these roles to anybody else, mm-hmm. right? There is a point where this where this shifts, yeah. where nobody cares. For instance, that Nicole Kim and Charlize Theron and Margot Robbie are going to play three American women in. A bombshell, yeah. right? It, you do get to a point where this stuff stops mattering. 
Sure. We're so, just not there yet, I don't think. We're, <laughs> well, we certainly weren't there in 99, but like – We're getting closer, it's, maybe. But it, it's an interesting point. Like um, all the characters in your show are Japanese-American. Mm-hmm. And did, some Japanese. And some Japanese. Did you Did you take – did you did you make a point of casting Japanese Americans to play the Japanese Americans and Japanese native Japanese? We did. You did. Yeah. And that was important. You. It was important because the, culturally, that is that's what the the uh, the experience was mm-hmm. that you wanted Japanese American actors to play the Nisei because they are American culturally American at their core. They may look Japanese. But everything about their mannerisms, their attitudes, uh, their willingness to speak up, their willingness to talk back mm-hmm. <laughs> is uh, is much more American. And then you, and then our uh, Issei generation immigrants were actually, in large part, played by immigrant Japanese who were working in other countries. Um, so- did Did you find it difficult to cast this way? Did you find yes. did you get you, did <laughs> yeah. you get a did you get pushback? Did you? I mean, we never got pushback, which okay. was amazing. Um, but you know, we did a four continent search. Wow. For uh, and we got you know we got our dad from Australia, we got our mom from the wow. UK. You know, we got uh, you know our our sort of villain character from Japan, Japan because the character is Japanese in origin. Uh, uh, and and so we were able to do it. It took a lot of doing, uh, yeah. but I think it's worth it because that's what those characters are at the core. Um, I think in the case of of uh, um, trans characters, you know, frequently that's the whole point of the character is that the experience is about being trans, and an argument can uh, be made, and I, th- I agree should be made in the present day to try to find trans actors to play. Uh, those parts. It was not part of the conversation in 1999. Not even, at all. Not even yeah, I, close. Uh, just it's 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 an interesting <clears throat> point. To me, it's it's to me it's not a right. There's there's not a right or a wrong. Mm-hmm. I mean, there is a right or a wrong in terms of groups that have been traditionally marginalized being played by people who share that mm-hmm. in terms of representation and um and opportunity. Mm-hmm. But in terms of art. Yeah. I do think that there's also the case to be made that any I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for, but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Any actor could potentially embody any character. The Scarlett Johansson argument. Well. I'm, I'm not trying to be <laughs> cute, but there is something to that, right? Yeah, <laughs> no, that's not really what okay. I mean so much. I don't mean that like a, a – I don't mean so much that like 
And I don't by, – by the way, like I, I really didn't mean that to be glib. I think that she's – Yes. She, yes. She, she made that argument. Yes. Yeah, she made that argument yeah. and I do think that there's a world where that works. Like I watch Hamilton for instance mm-hmm. and the thing I thought when I was watching Hamilton is one day in the near future – I thought a million things. One day in the near future, I think we're going to have a female Hamilton on Broadway. Mm-hmm. There's no reason why you can't have a female Hamilton on Broadway playing Alexander Hamilton as a man. Sure. Absolutely. And, and not as – in any kind of gender bending way. So I do think that, that there, I do think that there, it, it, that it is essentially an artistic choice, um, at its core. Now, there are obviously a lot of sociological and societal implications sure. to these choices. Sure. But. This, this is a thing that, because it spent so much time in theater, that is, theater's a metaphorical space. So, uh, when you have, um, Female actors playing male parts and uh, 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 people of uh, of sure other backgrounds playing you know, playing characters of, of different backgrounds. It doesn't it doesn't bump because it is metaphorical. There's something about film and television that is so literal that viewers can't get their brains around uh, that these are characters being played and not just. Your fav- favorite movie star walking in, you know that 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 yeah. Oh, this guy is so rich; he's playing someone who's poor. That doesn't feel right. It's like, but they're acting, you know. So that that is it, it's it's a it's a mental block that I think a lot of viewers have um, when you're familiar with an actor and you always kind of feel like they're literally. This is the movie star. Uh, uh, paradigm that you know it's always Clint Eastwood you know yeah. no matter what the name of the characters it's kind of always Clint Eastwood or it's all action movies in particular comedies uh, yeah and comedies frequently you know it's always Seth always Rose, Will yeah, Ferrell it's whatever yeah, it's the yeah. same you know wh- whatever whatever he's doing one of the nice things actually when yeah uh, that we had in our show was with, apart from George Takei we had no household names and the characters just sort of melt you know melt in mm-hmm. you don't kind of think about yeah you know, where where did I see that guy before. Um, so that, that, that is kind of a difficulty in this, in, in this particular case to circle back to mm-hmm. the snow falling on cedars is, uh, is that the character felt very Japanese. So it didn't feel at all Japanese American. And yeah. that I think is, uh, is, is actually a problem, uh, uh, for, for that, uh, for that specific character because there's no, uh, no delineation mm-hmm. of, 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 between generations. I would, I would even go. One step farther in terms of her character just sort of being this this object of obsession, this object of affection, and and never fully becoming a character of her own. I mean, we don't know why he's in love. We with don't know her. why he's definitely. in love with her. Well, it's a, she, she's a lust object, right? And and yeah. and and there's 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 a exotic quality to her mm-hmm. because of where she comes from. And I think that had they grounded it more in the Americanism of it, some of that would have been lost. Which is fine. I'm just saying I think that that's part of maybe the choice that they made. Which would have been better. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's, just, I think that's kind of the, the, the core of the argument is this could have been presented yes. as a love story between two young Americans yes. as opposed to a love story between two people from different cultures. Which if I recall from the book, that's what it was. A love story between two Americans. Yeah. 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 And it did feel – and I, I agree with you that it did feel like – An imbalance. Well, it definitely felt like an imbalance, but it, it felt like these two people were from completely different worlds, mm-hmm. like a, a lot further apart than the yeah. Montagues and the Capulets. It's, yeah. you know, like 
from from so much so that you just you don't you don't know where their connection is. Like they don't they feel like they're they feel like they're from two different planets. Mm-hmm. And he is so moon eyed around her um, that that it never it never feels. You never feel that real bond between them. Even at the end, when she comes to him, I think it's a little strange that she asks, can I hold you now? <laughs> um, it's a weird line. Uh, but I did like the last line where she's like, I'm grateful for your gentle heart, which I think is sort of interesting, even if he hasn't totally earned it, it feels. Um, they Even when they embrace at the end, you don't feel that spark. You don't feel that that real sort of connection between these two people. You know, you even you have to also ask yourself, like, what was what was his end game, right? Like, did he think, like, oh, well, her husband will go to jail and then she'll come back to me? Like, is that what he was it really thinking? To that he's like, okay, I'm going to be the bigger man now. I'm going to, you know, do what my sure. dad did, and and instead of like spitefully holding onto this piece <laughs> of evidence that could have exonerated yeah. the husband of the woman I'm in love with, I'm going to, you know, present it to the judge and uh, and and she'll be able to live her life with the husband that yeah. she chose. So I'm going to, you know, man up. And, and do that doesn't seem that heroic to me she very yeah. easily could have been like um this is some shit you could have told us like yeah. two weeks, weeks ago yeah. so my husband doesn't have to be a trial subjected yeah. to all this like open racism yeah have everyone in town think he's a murderer well, it's I'm, weird it's 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 a very sort of uh ishmael's character is just Built to be this hero. He's a war hero on top of that, which they're sort of also building into his character. There's just a lot of this very kind of um, – they put him on a pedestal in a weird way that I, that I don't completely understand. It's, it feels unearned. Um, but I also think that, again, it's like the, the, the curse and the blessing of this fractured narrative is like the movie throws you in at the beginning. You really have no context for what's going on. The trial – like immediately you're in this trial. So you're, you're really having to work your way through this sort of puzzle pieces of memories and, 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 and plot details and what have you, which again is why I'm sure this, one of the reasons why this wasn't successful, but it also just doesn't give you the groundwork to, to invest in Ethan's character specifically. Like you don't even really learn about his arm until like an hour and a half into the movie. It doesn't even matter. I mean, I, I, you know what I mean, though. It's just it's, it's, no, no, it's an know, example but, yeah. of things of seismic pieces of information about characters that you don't learn until pretty it, deep. Just as writers, if you yes. were given all these chess pieces of all these characters, it's like who would be the most interesting character to tell this story? <laughs> Whose point of view would be the most yeah. interesting to tell it from? Yeah, you know. It, the guy on trial, I would assume, <laughs> yeah, or or hers, or her. Yeah, it's yeah. one or the other. Yeah, yeah. You know? I mean, it's it, it's. No, you, I agree. You, you have the you know, the story of a a Japanese American community that sort of had had found its way to be accepted within you know there's the Strawberry Festival. They're you know they're kind of accepted, and then. World War II breaks out. They come back and and their land has been taken from them, sold out from under them, and and there's still this sometimes covert but sometimes very overt racism that they're still facing. And a large part of the uh, internment experience uh, is actually the uh, the the resettlement. It was uh, you know returning to 
an America that was technically still at war with Japan uh, in early 45 and then after 1945 that was still very hostile to Japanese Americans and uh, with nothing, with everything that you had gained having been lost. That dramatically – there's a lot of heft uh, to that. Yeah. Um, you know, if – if I could have, if if I had to choose all of those characters, yeah, I would have probably chosen you know either Katsu, Kazuo or Hatsue, you know, to, to tell it from, or maybe Max Wright. Maybe Alf's dad's a mean dude. Alf's dad is a horrible, horrible racist. <laughs> so he's a really interesting character. So we, it, so we, the, the movies I brought up, um, yeah, not Angela's Ashes so much, but uh, Snowfalling. I mean, uh, Sidehouse Rules. Yeah. And Anna and the King. Green Mile. Green yeah, Mile. Yeah. A, there are others, but a lot of these, these movies, these Oscar play movies have this exact same problem, which is it's some, some kind of marginalized group story. Mm-hmm. And we tell it through the eyes of Ethan Hawke, Tony McGuire, a, a very particular kind of white guy. Mm-hmm. I mean, Jodie Foster's not a white guy, but you know what I mean? Yeah. Like a very, like a, a very movie ready, Fresh face, Tom Hanks, someone who's very comfortable to the audience to bring mm-hmm. us into this foreign exotic world that yeah. we might not feel comfortable anyway, that they really have virtually no business being in. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the only way through which white Westerners, or at least that's what the studios seem to think, white Westerners are comfortable learning about these experiences. Yeah, this idea that we need some sort of a, uh, a conduit. Mm-hmm. To into this world is ridiculous. It's well, it is ridiculous, of <laughs> yeah. course. It's borne out by history, the history of cinema and literature. These mm-hmm. things aren't from nothing. Sure, sure. We, we're talking about the King and I. We're talking about yeah. um, John or, or John, John Irving novel. We're yeah. talking about Snow Falling and Cedars, which yeah. is a novel. We're talking about. I mean, you go back to like Out of Africa, which is this, a very similar yeah. thing, and you're talking about Gunga Din, and you're talking every like every yeah. go go back further and further and further through history. That's the way white Westerners have have shown other cultures. You take some, you know, some do we European do, or American, yeah. put them into that culture, yeah. whether it's in America or or, or afar, um, and and say, well, this is the way we relate to this. So yeah. I, I I do think this is the kind of thing, kind of as a, as a sub, kind of as a a a, a subset or a, kind of a a sub argument of the more like a sister to the um to the score idea this is an idea that was kind of petering out around 99 that we have to tell stories of cultures that aren't white american through the eyes of white americans well, and i think this, that's why yeah. people push back against green books so much mm-hmm. well because there's know? this yeah. this this the notion being i'm assuming that that white people won't go see the movie if yeah. they don't see themselves, right. quote unquote, on the screen. Which they didn't. <laughs> which, which, <laughs> sure. No, no, no. I'm right. sorry. They didn't yeah. see this anyway. They didn't see so this anyway. anyway. So there's, there's, and, and the argument then off, you know, now it seems to a certain degree where it's like they've started to, the studios started to realize, well, maybe that goes for minorities or, or diverse as you know, this idea of like crazy rich Asians or whatever the case might be, where it's like they're trying now to sort of, you know, make the tent a little bit bigger, but it doesn't feel like it, it, they're doing it for, it feels a little bit like they're doing it for the wrong reasons. They're not doing it because it's actually a better storytelling device. They're doing it because they want to get, you know, 
Wrong reasons are okay sometimes. I, I, okay. It, whatever the reason is that's yeah. being done, yeah. and okay. I'm happy about that. It's sort of incumbent on on broadcasters and movie studios now to you know to to uh, to, to open up the tent a, a little bit more. I think that because the mediums have evolved, viewership has has grown more sophisticated. Sure, sure. In television itself, because there's so much scripted television. Out there, you it's it, it's incumbent on 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 the broadcaster to make uh, TV shows that everyone doesn't have one of already. Yeah. So uh, in order to do that, you have to take what might have been perceived a few years ago to be a great risk, and and it's been borne out time and again not to be a huge risk. Yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't need to be. I mean, I, I went to see the the farewell a couple months mm-hmm. ago, which is a tremendous film. Everybody should should go and see it. Um, but. You know, A24 and, and any number of, of companies have found ways to really kind of to be, to be very successful at it, monetarily speaking, which, I mean, it's a business, so I understand why people are trying to, to be successful. But uh, that film, I thought, was was brilliant and did a tremendous job yeah, of, of, of really kind of um, – I mean, I, I guess the other thing too is – if a movie's great, you're you're not going to feel alienated by it. Do you know what I mean? This idea that we're that this constant fear of alienation is just kind of bizarre to me. Like, there's a pitch that I'm uh, that I'm out with right now that has elements of period. Um, you know, it takes place uh, part of it takes place in the '60s, part of it takes place in the '90s, and there's this fear it feels like to a certain degree of alienating people because it doesn't take place now with people that look exactly like me, and I just think that's just crazy. But I mean, that's just how it is, I guess. There's, you know, I, I can't pretend to understand what happens in the in the minds of people who make uh, these sort of decisions, <laughs> but they're highly risk averse, right? Like anything that 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 m- might uh, might smack of spending money that might be lost is right. Uh, is uh, uh you know a uh, is 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 a taboo so uh doing things in period costs money costs a lot of money so that that's always yeah, always sure. expensive and you know there is a uh, a feeling sometimes of of it sometimes feeling musty you know right and uh, uh that's one of the reasons why we you know we use the horror genre sure. in the middle of it so it wouldn't feel like a museum piece uh, right 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 uh, talking about our show, yeah. So uh, uh, th- there's there's any number of reasons that, that, that anyone can, <laughs> can can throw at you for you know, not making your for thing, not making your thing. Yeah. Back to uh, yes, you, just to kind of connect that. There's no falling on cedars. Um, the period drama, particularly this period, um, there's so many barriers for the viewer anyway. Yeah. That to on top of that. Put this fractured narrative and throwing you in where you threw where, where you're thrown in mm-hmm. the murder having happened. You you show up. You're in the courtroom. Yeah. Um, you have to figure out where you are in time. Not, it, both right yeah. in time, yeah. space, yeah. and in the con in in, in the narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, I I I think was a really bad decision. I do. I think ultimately, yeah. like it's a really bad decision. You're probably going to going to snow falling on cedars as a viewer. I can think of three reasons. You read the book. One is you like the book. Yeah. Two is you like the visuals you see in the teasers, trailers. Yeah. Into the trailers. Um, and three, you're interested in the the period. Three, I think you could be interested in um, mm-hmm. in the, in this period mm-hmm. and in the Japanese the historical fiction of it. Yeah. And uh, outside of that, you um, love Ethan Hawke. Yeah. So maybe four people saw for that. <laughs> um, Outside of that, I can't really, you know, think of a great reason why someone would go see the movie. So I think that I would have served those ideas. 
first and foremost. I mean, I think that there's – I don't think you're going to see a great murder mystery is really what I'm trying to say. Yeah. I mean I would I – would, you know, or a great I, I think that drama. I think that that the 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 degree to which the narrative was fractured might not have necessarily need to be that far. I mean, I think that they went whole hog on it, and I think there might have been a way to dial back some of those elements so it wasn't as sort of discombobulating. There's an insecurity but, to it. Sure, there's an insecurity to presenting the story this way. Mm-hmm. You know, um, especially if it deviates from the the book. novel, yeah. right? So the the idea of you know kind of a, a Sister argument to what Alex was saying was that we have eight hours. How do we turn it into two? Yeah. Um, it's, it's how do we make this movie more than just a period piece with some nice visuals? And I think that they kind of mess it. With does, it does feel like that's, that's certainly a, a part of it. I, I just, I think that they, I mean, it comes back to sort of what you were saying, which is that the more interesting story, the most interesting elements are, are the, uh, the Asian American elements of the of the story and and for whatever reason those are really tucked away they they, they it's it's sort of their I'm not even sure that there's any like actual a lot of it's just to music it's visuals and mm-hmm. music um which admittedly is is a good chunk of this movie to begin with but still you just never feel as though they they really fully engage on that part of the story i, I would have i would have loved to have seen a scene between uh, Kazu and Hatsui at home while he's on trial yeah. talking about like, you know, I'm never coming back because this, this courtroom is against me. There's 12 white jurors up there. They will never, never see it our way. Um, why won't, you know, uh, your ex-boyfriend help us? Mm-hmm. You know, why is he not? His dad used to write editorials, uh, uh, you know, championing, uh, you know, our people. Why won't he do anything? Why is he just sitting up there? Why is he looking at you like that? I can't go talk to him. What? There's any number yeah. of great scenes. You that just saved the You movie. just saved the movie. <laughs> With one scene, you gave – well, also just you give you give context. You and understand stakes. who these people are. Like it's – instead, it's all just implied. It's all It's all just, you know – Hoping that you know another long close-up shot of their faces will, in some way or another, convey what you're saying, which they didn't. I, I, there is a part of me that really feels like that at some point there was a version of the script, whether it was shot or not, that had a lot more. And then, in order to get all the visuals that either Scott Hicks wanted or whoever wanted, right. They just had to just cut everything else to shreds, just so you could spend that opening shot of of of, of Carl going up on yeah. the, onto the mast takes like three minutes. It's beautiful. Yeah, you know, it's beautiful. It's like all right, let's well, that's three minutes of story we we don't need. You know, it is it is glacial in its pacing and also, yeah, it is weird. It's weird. It's like they sacrifice character for mood. Um, and, and that he, he, you know, you almost on some level think he wants to tell a silent movie, like that he just doesn't even really want anybody to be speaking. Yeah. Are there, um, that you know of, are there other kind of major movies, major American movies about the Japanese American internment from before this period? From uh, before 99? Uh, um, yes. Uh, uh, Go for Broke, which was a Van Johnson movie that was done, but again, you had, Van Johnson, you had a white yeah. uh, American. What what year is that? If you like, I'm going to guess 50s. Um, yeah, that was about the uh, about the 442. 51, 1951. Yeah. yeah, but again, you have a you know a, a white lead uh, 
in, in the middle of it. There were some uh, some other. Uh, what year was Farewell to Manzanar? That would have been. Uh, that is seventy six. Okay. So, th- so there's not many. Not much. I mean, so I'm the, looking at a list right now, and it's short. So, a point I want to make is when you deal with a undertold period of history, yeah, it's also a very important period of history, and you um, at least for a generation, I would argue, for almost anyone watching this movie, this is their first exposure, real to exposure. To this, yep. right? I didn't learn about this in school, yep. for mm-hmm. instance, right? So this is your first real exposure to this. You have a responsibility to educate as much as you do to – because I'm thinking about the difference between To Kill a Mockingbird and mm-hmm. this movie, right? To Kill a Mockingbird also doesn't give a lot of agency to – I don't even remember Tom's last name, but to the character on trial. I don't remember. You don't need it so much because you know exactly what's going on in the South at that period of time to people like him. You know all the things you just expressed in this fictional scene. You know that that's what he's feeling because you know exactly what that's like. I don't really know when you – I don't really – like I don't really know if people – if the audience has understood exactly what that character felt was like going felt through. like and what he was up against and the way he probably felt like I'm doomed from the start and – there's assumptions being made particularly as to what because, the audience knows. Particularly because the movie presents every – this is not your ra- your typical racist Southerners who are mm-hmm. out to get people. Mm-hmm. Every white person in this movie with the exception of um, – with the exception of Max um, – Fonsito or Max, Max Wright. Wright. Yeah. yeah he's overtly I'll, just a – He's a big racist, yeah, right? A, Outside of him, yeah. they're all really decent. Yep. There's Celia Weston's character too, the wife who sold the, yes, yeah, yes, she's, the German. She's like a villain. Yeah. So there are a few like racists who are like a little racist, but you get the impression from the, the great majority of these people that they're open minded. Particularly like the judge, James Cromwell, throws it out on a hunch. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um so I guess I'm saying two things. One is I don't think that, that that the portrayal of all the white people in this movie is is probably true to life. Mm-hmm. And two yeah, this movie had to educate. It really yeah. had to kind of give us the baseline of what people were feeling at this period of time right. as opposed to, you know, this really, really surface Pearl Harbor happened. Well, because part of it I think is I, – I agree with you 100 percent. Part of it is also just in terms of the, the, the type of film or that Scott Hicks wants to make. He, he is – it seems hell-bent on not giving you a stuffy historical drama. Um, for good or for bad, uh, and and because of that, to your point, he's he doesn't want to deal with that stuff because his I, I you know so well, he has to of course he does you course, have to you of know? course you do um, if you do I, a I movie think his, yeah I'm just if you do a movie about John Nash you have to explain who John Nash is because mm-hmm. no one knows who sure. that is if you do a movie about Richard Nixon you can get into the sure you know so but and 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 just to be clear the fictional scene that you wrote were, is a, a two three minute scene at most and would go you know to great lengths in terms of just explaining where we are and. And furthermore, I think like – I mean I think not to put words in your mouth, Alex, but basically you're saying that should have been half the movie. Well, yeah, that too. If not more. <laughs> it would be but, the, the more interesting part of it you know, right. uh, to, to me. It, I, I, I can't pretend to, to, to know what, what Scott Hicks – what kind of movie he, he wanted. It seemed to be a very sort of moody yes. romance. Mm-hmm. You know, so, but because 
half of that romance is so underserved. Yes. We have no idea what he's in love with. Yeah. Uh, so that, that's the difficulty. The, the historical part of it, you know, because I've spent the past, you know, a couple of years, uh, immersed in it, maybe I have a very different point of view. There's so much story to be mined there. There's so much that could be told. And it's just not, you know, seems like, a real shame, and uh, you know, to, to Kenny's point, uh, you know, we thought about this all the time. Is that there's a, a huge spectrum of people who might come watch our show. Right. You have people whose families were in camps, you know, who they themselves might have been cam- been in camps. On the other end, probably a much larger uh, group of the, part of the viewership have very little notion of what happened or might not have even been aware that it happened. Mm -hmm. And somehow we have to, on one end, honor and respect the experience of those who are very, very close to it and know a lot about it. And on the other side, give people their first visual sense of what it was like and not just the visual, an emotional sense Mm -hmm. of how it felt. And uh, you know, we we tried. It's up to you if you watch it to decide. You know uh, how, how well how well we did. But we were very very uh, aware of that. There's a, a because so much of this movie, and you know, you're limited to two hours. That that is uh, always an issue. And you know, the entire history of this uh, story takes place starts when they were kids. So it's mm-hmm. you know. Sure. Uh, more than ten years uh, uh, in in their lives, and the middle of that is World War Two, and and it's just kind of a, a glancing blow mm-hmm. at at best. The I would have been really curious to to find out Kazuo's story of joining the army mm-hmm. because there is there, there was a real divide uh, at at the at the time among the Japanese Americans in camps about whether or not they should. Um, uh, resist because why would I go fight for a country that put me and my family in a camp and call this enemy aliens and another group that uh, so we're going to prove our loyalty by joining the army and fighting for this country and we're going to show that we're real Americans uh, this is a divide that quite frankly to this day the families of uh what's known as the no no boys and the yes yes boys you know <laughs> is 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 still uh um uh, uh, somewhat fraught um, you barely show his service you yeah. barely show his service i mean there's a scene where he yeah, in a cave. seems to be in vancouver somewhere <laughs> you know throwing a grenade and that's that, that's yeah. about it um and then there's the scene in the cave where he hits the the guy with the butt of his yeah, gun yeah it's it's just it's very it's yeah, but what I mean, I'm I'm curious what he was absolutely. You know, is he yeah. was he all in on being an American? Did yeah. he want to prove? Did he just want to get out of camp? You know, all of these things are are are, are, are hit on issues of of your own identity and your own role in this country because you have just been told by your own government that you are a danger, you are a threat to this nation, to the national security, yeah. and you have to be stuck in a camp. And then to join the military and to fight and to join uh, what ended up being the most decorated unit in the in, in the history of the American military, uh, but also one that lost people had casualties uh, in extreme extreme amounts. Uh, what's the mentality of that? And then coming back to a country that is still going to malign you. Sure. So th- that to me is, is dramatically really really interesting. Absolutely. I so do you. And I mean, this is just sort of a 
Do you think you could make that movie today? Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. That's the movie I want to I see. I want to see. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm not. Still I'm being. Out Cedars two. <laughs> Cedars with a with a, a dollar sign. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I just because I, I, I there's just a part of me that feels like first of all what you're saying I'm completely sold on, but also just do you think that story could be told today? That story is being incredibly relevant now. Uh, you know, you just you, you have to wonder whether or not. I hope that that movie can get made. I just think because I'm putting my I was trying to put my head in 99 for a second and thinking like why the movie was made this way. And it, for, for obvious reasons, attempts at trying to get a bigger audience, attempts at winning Oscars, attempts at a whole bunch of things. Uh, and, and, you know, and in turn, they made a movie that's far less interesting. Um, but it was a different time to a certain degree. And I just would like to think that 20 years on that that version of Snow Falling on Cedars could be made. And I don't know the answer to that. Well, it wouldn't be the book. It would be it'd, right. No, yeah, be, just, yeah. Uh, it would be some somewhat different. But I think it would be the more interesting version uh, of sure. that story. I agree, hundred percent. I mean, I think that uh, you know, it's it's it is interesting to think about because I mean, you you brought up Green Book, which is sort of an example of you know that we haven't that the Academy or that this industry in a lot of ways hasn't made as many sort of leaps as we would like to think, or at least hasn't grown as much as we would like to think. Um, you know, that was a, that was a, a middle of the road, you know, fastball down the plate, Oscar play that connected with the Academy voters. You know, what? I don't even know if it was an Oscar play. I like, I think it was. I get Did you see Green Book, Alex? No, I was in the middle of Green Book. <laughs> You're like, I it's was in the like, middle of trying to make a television to. show. I, but quite frankly, no, I didn't want it. Yeah, Green no, Book no, I get was that. A throw, it, Green Book was a throwback. It's like yeah. the Oscar movies don't look like – the, the fact that it won was so bizarre, so bizarre because like Moonlight wins Best Picture now. 12 Years a Slave wins. Well, Shape of Water wins. Like this is not – this does not look like a current Oscar movie. So <clears> – <throat> It's everything about Green Book was so weird. Were we in a country where Barack Obama wins elections? We were. We, we yeah, we, we were. were. We were. <laughs> Back I, in the no, day. I, no, that's true too. But like, <laughs> but, it's funny but, but like, this movie was made when Barack Obama was president. Like this yeah. movie, it's I, I, I. The I mean, the way I feel about Green Book is that like Green Book is is kind of a well intentioned movie that. That yeah. never planned on being what it became. What it became. Yeah. I don't think that, like, I think it meant to be like a 40, 50 million dollar movie that, yeah. like, did kind of well and had some good performances and made some old people feel good about themselves. But it, it, it like, it, on some level, you it, imagine it can't that the, carry the weight of this thing. Well, it's like you, you imagine that the people that made Green Book really just wanted to be nominated. You know what I mean? Because then they can, <laughs> yeah. you know what I mean? Then you can get all the, the riches that you can get off of the nominee. But you think to win, it's, it's just, it's, it it's a curse. It can't stand up to the scrutiny is all I'm trying to say. Like yeah. it can't stand, it can't hold up to the scrutiny because, because it can't. Yeah, sure. But like it, there's just something about it. it just never like, it wasn't built to withstand right. it. It was built to kind of just make people who liked Driving Miss Daisy, feel like you, you know, this is kind of like that, guys. <laughs> no, I agree. I agree. And it's, it, it, by the way, it's a lot less offensive than Driving Miss Daisy. So, sure. Um, I mean, yeah, it's got 20 years on it. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's not, you know, it's not more crash. than that. It's not crash. It's instance. not crash. <laughs> it's, it is interesting to, to, 
watching this movie through the lens of because I remember I remember when it came out. I remember not seeing it. I remember not thinking that this was something that you I remember just, not seeing. Yeah, it. I was like, I don't. I have no interest in seeing Snow Falling on Cedars. No. Like, it's not a thing that I was I'm interested until, in seeing until I was like, isn't this? I thought it was smell the sense of snow. <laughs> the other snow movie, <laughs> yeah, or Mr. Also, Snowman, also book. my favorite movie. Yes, yeah, Smell the Snow is a good book. Not a good movie though. What was uh? What was Mr. Snowman? What was that? The Snowman. Yeah, I, yeah. yeah Policeman that. gave I gave you all the clues, <laughs> Mr. Policeman. <laughs> Mr. Policeman. I gotta, I gotta see that you movie. Really, you do need to see that movie. Did that you movie? see it? Yeah. Is it not in the theater? Is but it I, good? No, oh, but worst. it's it's great. But I love it. You'll love it. Yeah. Um, but it's funny because like I I trying to sort of as I sat down to watch this movie, I really had no expectations whatsoever, and I was surprised a little bit by the way it was executed. And then I was like, of course this movie didn't connect with audiences. Like, why, why would this – it's it's like they went out of their way to make a movie that was trying to be a studio picture in terms of its prettiness, lack of any other way of putting yeah. it. And and then also just impossible to emotionally connect to or understand sort of the nature of its narrative. It's it's just – it's a bizarre movie. It gets arty in strange places. It does. Uh, the sound <laughs> – Yeah. The sound mix. Oh, I hate yeah. it. It was really annoying. Which makes me which, – which brings me back to my first comment, which yeah. was um, 68% from audiences. <laughs> yeah, 68% from I – mean, I, I saw that I, too. I, I, was, I'm, I'm, I want to read a little bit of Ebert's review here just to sort of say that speaks a little bit to your point, which is that I do think that there were some critics that this movie did connect for. Uh, Roger Ebert talks about the story seems like crime and romance but Snow Falling Us reveals itself with the complexity of a novel holding its themes up to the light so that the first one and then another can be seen. The style is crucial to the subject. The story unfolds in flashbacks, overlapping dialogue, half understood events, flashes of memory all seen in a variety of visual styles. Above all, there is a sense of place. Director Scott Hicks and his cinematographer Robert Richardson use a widescreen canvas to envelop the story in trees, snow, rain, lowering skies, wetness, and shadows. Rarely has a place been so evoked as part of the narrative. We sense that these people are all neighbors partly because the forests crowd them together um bass and hicks uh written by ron bass and hicks from the novel is unusually satisfying the way that it unfolds we don't feel the time structure is a gimmick but we learn what we need to know for each scene some of these have a particular power as with the japanese americans are ordered from their homes by lo- local authorities told to take no more than will fit in a suitcase and driven away to internment camps we see scenes like this in stories about the holocaust and in parables of the future in which america has become a totalitarian state not everyone in the audience will realize it actually happened here and that's sort of he's really taking a lot from it mm-hmm. if that makes sense like he's re- he knows this time period he under so there's a lot of projection going on and he's pulling a lot of stuff from a, a relatively sort of dreamlike movie um so if you come to it with that knowledge this film might perhaps work better for you i'm giving him a lot of credit but i just wonder whether or not this was just sort of it tapped into some sort of a vein with him because perhaps he had more knowledge of the events. It, it seems like he was just so grateful there was something. <laughs> sure. You know, a, a sure, that too. That, 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 uh, that he was willing to give it credit for that. But I, I, I think, you know, there was so much missing from it as well. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it doesn't seem like it was an easy movie to make. Uh, Ethan Hawke in interviews admitted that it was not a great acting experience. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems like... It felt like he had one arm tied behind his head. <laughs> 
but you know what I mean? There's, there's a lot of exteriors. It's a lot of snow. I, it seems as though this, and a lot of nights, it doesn't seem like it would be a fun movie to make. Um, but I do, I mean, uh, production designer Janine Oppenwald joined the producers and director on months of scouting through the Pacific Northwest and Alaska. She said it was important to find the most poetic and visually arresting location since the story reflects the impact of an incident. I, I do think there's a lot of people working very hard to try to make a good movie. Um, and unfortunately they, they were only marginally successful. I think. I, I think they were unsuccessful, but, um, <laughs> I think, I think Alex, you feel they were unsuccessful. Yeah. I would From a storytelling I, perspective, I, I, you, I, in terms of the story they were telling, yeah, or in even terms if, of, even if I were to, to, uh, completely divorce myself from the side of telling the story, the better story, yeah. the, the the Japanese American experience, sure. just as a uh, as a drama, it mm-hmm. doesn't it doesn't because I don't connect with those characters. Mm-hmm. It doesn't I, I don't feel uh, engaged at all because right. in many ways of the, the the pace of the of the thing that's so in love with the visuals and and establishing the sense of place, I get it. I got it, you know, <laughs> five minutes in, five minutes in, <laughs> yeah. you know, I wanted to, to connect with the people and, yeah. and I didn't. And to, to the that's, point that's about the crux, the, um, the visuals, you know, is your, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm very into, uh, the idea of assuming a tent mm-hmm. and the idea of trying to figure out uh, what's the way this movie works for me, you know, like, um, I know we all know how hard it is to make things. So, yeah, and, and I hate the idea that people are going into something I've made and are just tearing it down, you know, and pulling at every little string. Well, try the other thing where you actually try to, you know, put it together and make it look good and, and, and figure out why this works. And I think Ebert's doing that to some extent. I think, I, yeah, I can't quite, and I think that's fine. I can't quite figure out what purpose the beautiful visuals serve. And I get that that's where the story takes place, but it takes place on a fictional island and, and, you know, and, um, <laughs> Japanese Americans were interned up and down the coast, right? And all over the country, but you could have set this anywhere is, mm-hmm. is kind of the point I'm trying to make. So why set it in this like incredibly strikingly beautiful place if you're not going to Undercut it with some really awful, yeah. terrible images and ideas that undercut the beauty, the, the natural physical beauty of this country, which I yeah. think we have to really bring to that. We have to, you have to have a certain knowledge of this period that I don't think most people have. With that. Um, yeah. and I think they easily could have kind of done that. I think, you know. I think yeah. Holocaust stories do that all the time. And yeah. I don't think that's particularly difficult to just say, oh, the, you know, kind of the, the underbelly of this country is really nasty and disgusting. Yeah. I mean, the, I think, I think what we can all agree on here is that this was a missed opportunity and that there would, there was a lot more that could have been done with it. Um, I don't necessarily, I mean, again, didn't read the book, so it's hard for me to say, but there's a part of me that feels like, um, at the very least, more of a pivot towards, explaining Hatsu's background and, 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 and any number of things. Um, so in that respect, I, I think it was a missed opportunity I, on a production level. I think that they, I think they did a very good job of, um, 
of eliciting a place and a tone and a, and a feeling, um, and you know, and some and some superb uh, supporting actors. Um, so, Alex, we rate our films mm-hmm. at the end of our episodes. Uh, we do zero to ninety nine, uh, ninety nine being the highest. Uh, so, the, essentially, we'll rate it before this podcast and then after this podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll go first. I'll be the the canary in the coal mine on this one. Uh, I as I as you guys know, when I sat down at the beginning of this podcast, I didn't hate this movie. Um, I probably liked it. I certainly liked it more than both of you did. Um, I, I gave it a I gave it a seventy. <gasps> Sitting down oh. before this podcast, that was what I gave it. Yeah. Now I've obviously greatly changed my number um, because I do think that you guys made valid points on in. A bunch of things that I did not think of as I was watching it. I was taken with the visuals. I was taken with the sort of, as I mentioned, the the fractured narrative, the dreamlike quality of it, the all of that. The impressionistic qualities worked for me. But as I said, I had real problem with the character stuff. All that being said, I would now give the film probably a, I'll be, I'll say fifty seven. Um, I, so I would still a soft recommend. I I I. I Again, I would recommend if if let's just say for instance you want to be a cinematographer, I would watch Snow Falling on Cedars. I think it is a beautifully shot film. I think if you, I, I think that there's a lot of things. If, I think that the editing is interesting. I think if you're a composer, you should watch it as what not to do. <laughs> I think that there are things about it that are worthwhile. I don't think it is a, a a completely worthless film, and I I would recommend certain elements of it to a person that was looking for something like that. You want me to go next? You go next. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I'm going. Um, oh boy. Well, yeah. I, I, you know, sometimes I write a little something. Uh, yeah, yeah. With, with my review. You're a writer. Um, what I wrote was, <laughs> I think this is a bad movie. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, succinct. Um, I gave it a 35. Okay. That's what I thought. Before I, the podcast? Yeah. Before the podcast. I, 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 well, I mean, it's, 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 you know, it's everything I said over the course of the podcast. Sure. Um, the other, the other thing that we didn't talk about a lot is like, it's a deeply boring movie. Like, it's a slog. It's a slog. It's just, it is. So, I'm not, I'm not gonna uh, just you know, that. um, I think it's worse now, actually. Really? Yeah, I do because <laughs> okay. I feel like I gave Angela's Ashes around a 35. And Ashley's Ashes is. I like this more than Angela's Ashes. I think this Ashley's, Angela's Ashes is this without like also kind of, being really problematic. Um, I really think Angela's Ashes has like some built-in problems that it can't get around, but it it did the best with what it – basically the task of Angela's Ashes was almost impossible in my opinion, whereas the task of Snow, Snow Falling on Cedars was far from impossible. So um, – I'm not making excuses for the choices they made. Just no, I know. Clear. I know. <laughs> I'm just saying – I'm just, just putting yeah. those two things yeah. apart. Like Angela's Ashes – was Scott Rudin essentially saying, you know, take this unfilmable, unfilmable <laughs> book, <laughs> book and film it, whereas Snow Falling on Cedar seems extremely filmable. Um, and they just made a lot of really bad decisions that made it worse. That's what it seems like. I'm dropping it down to 30. Um, not the worst movie we've done by a long shot. I, I'm but. curious, where, what else has gotten 30s and below? 
Um, well, real I mean, bad movies. I mean, the like story the Thomas of the Crown story, Affair. Shut up! I like the Thomas Crown Affair. <laughs> uh, the I story of us, really uh-huh. the, the Rob Reiner, Michelle Pfeiffer, uh-huh. Bruce Willis movie uh, was certainly up there for us in terms of or down there down for there. us. Chill Factor, Simon Chill Factor, says. Simon Says. I mean, these are these are real bottom of the barrel movies. Movies Bicentennial like, Man. Yeah, Bicentennial Man was. I don't know. The, the thing about this movie. I think Andrew's Ashes is probably the best comparison just in terms of what this movie was striving for. Simon Says was not striving for anything. No. Um, neither was Chill Factor. Uh, and Story of Us uh, is still my least favorite film we've covered thus far because it is attempting to tell a character story and fails so miserably. Um, this movie to me just, you know, it made choices and those choices just made for a, a slow plotting movie that just didn't really work. We're generally speaking, and yes. and the king was really bad. Was a really I don't know what we scored it. Though. I'm I'm trying to find those letterboxes. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't score it well. And and the king's probably a good example of something mm. in this in this sort of vein. Um, yeah, I mean it's it's like the the we love talented Mr. Ripley. Bringing out the dead is a movie that I really love, um, but you know feels like didn't really connect in the way it came out around the same time ish. Um, we haven't done Three Kings yet, but I think that that's a movie that we – I think we all enjoy that film. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I don't know if that answered your question. It, it, it's interesting. I, 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 I was thinking about this and yeah. while watching it this week. And the things I would have to give it credit for are pretty pictures. Yes. Uh, because the cinematography is is lovely in, mm-hmm. in many places. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the production design, I think, is is – uh, excellent in many places and giving us a sense of 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 time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have to give it some credit for at least acknowledging uh, this period in history and and giving it uh, you know even even in the few scenes that that show. The injustice of the uh, of the experience and you know, having your property confiscated, um, you have to give it some credit for that. The but you know it's so over uh, um, uh, shadowed by by many of the other flaws, and it feels a little unfair in 2019 to be doing that. But <laughs> my numbers are pretty close to Kenny's. I was thinking somewhere in the right. around 32, right, right, right. which uh, That's fair. which I is get that about the same. I think we had so when we had your wife on, uh, Whitney. For, oh, we talked about a problematic movie. <laughs> that's a that's a more. <laughs> you said movie. <laughs> Talk about a wonderful <laughs> guest, problematic movie. Uh, but that was also that was the type of thing where I mean, very different circumstances. But for Sweet and Lowdown, you know, we I feel like we all kind of ended up in in and around the 50 mark, if I'm not mistaken, it felt like we all were sort of torn mm-hmm. as to how to, you know, it's a different situation, obviously. I remember the numbers changing over the course of that podcast. Yeah, they did. Yeah. They, they were, they were, so it, it, it's, it's a, it's, it's tough when your subject matter, uh, is just not executed well in this film. Sweden Lotus is a completely different animal because that's just the woody factor, which mm-hmm. you just can't even really, you know, quantify i guess at this point but uh yeah i mean i i i I guess i'm just willing to give the film a little bit maybe too much credit for it's below the line (laughs) sort of what it comes down to um but you know that was uh you know snow falling on cedars 
Yeah. Um, Looks like the dude who was doing our letterbox gave up. Gave up <laughs> after 83 films, but uh, just, just fair. Just uh, for the, the sake of completism. Sure. My bottom 10. Yeah. From the bottom up. Chill Factor, Thomas Crown, terrible movie. Story of Us, Mickey Blue Eyes, movie. Haunting, Runaway Bride, Teaching Mrs. Tingle, Detroit Rock City, and uh, Wild Blood West and Forces of Nature. Those are, are my bottom. Are all below 30? Probably. They're, they're definitely all below 40. Okay. What are mine out of curiosity? Um, click here for Philip Isco's ratings. Uh, Story of Us, Chill Factor, Mickey Blue Eyes, they're the same. Okay. Detroit Rock City, Runaway Bride, Haunting, Bicentennial Man, Teaching Mrs. Tingle, House on Haunted Hill, Wild Wild West. Those are your bottom 10. Yeah, I, mean, I think they're pretty. We're, we're, you know, except for Story of Us, which I. No, I mean, Story of Us was my third. Oh, was it? Oh, okay, sorry. Yeah, except for Thomas Crown, which you think is some kind of masterpiece. I don't think it's a like, masterpiece. It's a good. Have you seen Thomas Crown Affair? No. It's a good movie, Alex. You might like it. Talk of, it, It's definitely not the second worst movie of the year, but talk about a movie <laughs> that missed opportunities. It's, it's a terrible uh, It's a terrible movie. No, I enjoyed being berated by three people on this podcast so for weird. enjoying people, uh, Thomas Crown Affair. Three people came on this podcast. Three people came on this podcast and, and literally no, just Four people me. on this podcast and three of them despised it, yet despised is a hard is is not doesn't matter what? next week we are doing the best man have you seen the best man alex I, you, you're you keep telling me with these movies i haven't seen just name them <laughs> the best man tay diggs um morris chestnut tay diggs morris chestnut uh, uh nina, nina long nina long um sine uh, lathan sure um i mean they yeah. a lot of people yeah i want to keep a stacked going. cast who else is who? All right. Uh, um, what's the guy from Lost? Uh, Walt's dad. Yeah. Do you remember him? Yeah. Also Romeo and Juliet. This yeah. Romeo and Juliet. Yeah. yeah. Um, he's he's in Claws now. <laughs> he might be. Oh, what is his name? Uh, is it like it's, oh is it Malcolm? No, 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 no. It's Harold Perrineau. There it is. There it is. Um, oh. Who's the fourth guy? The fourth guy is Terrence Howard. Also famous. Terrence, Terrence Howard. Howard. Terrence Howard. It's a it's a great cast. Yeah. Uh, and it's a good movie. I, I enjoyed it. Uh, yeah. We have Aaron Thomas coming on, the uh, showrunner of uh, SWAT, creator, yeah. showrunner of SWAT. Um, showrunner Central up in here. Back to back showrunners. Nothing but showrunners. <laughs> have uh, we talked? I'm sure you have yeah. in, in the course of, uh, of 80 some odd episodes oh, about yeah. how 99 is sort of a, a, a pivot moment uh, uh, for, uh, for television. And also for movies uh, as a result, because 99 is when Sopranos. Sopranos, West, West Wing. Wing. Yeah. Uh, Freaks and Geeks, which we're doing a miniseries on. Freaks and Geeks, you know. Uh, Oz was two years before. Mm-hmm. And, then six, was, yeah. and then Six Feet Under was two years after. Mm-hmm. And The Wire was shortly after that. Mm-hmm. But uh, because I was part of – I was at the very end of it, but I was a, a part of a migration of playwrights mm-hmm. from theater to television because television started getting really, really good around mm-hmm. 1999. And the kinds of movies that we really loved movies for in the 90s – you know, this this is a sort of pivot moment here. I think. Yeah. No, we're we're we are definitely we've we've covered a little bit of television so far. We're going to be we're doing a mini series on Freaks and Geeks. We're going to do one on The Sopranos and The West Wing as well in the future. Uh, we did um, we just did an episode on Heat Vision and Jack, the uh, the unaired pilot, the mm-hmm. Ben Stiller thing, which was uh, I think one of our best episodes and really kind of dives into. It's first, that, that fulcrum point that's existing. It's the first episode where we actually sounded like we knew what we were talking about. <laughs> <It's the first laughs> 
Where uh, we- <laughs> first and only. Accurate. Uh, but yeah, it's, we did it's, television ratings. We did television ratings. We did TV ratings with uh, Joe Adalian um, from Vulture. Mm-hmm. Um, and did Whitney so- hook that up? Uh, she knows everyone. What's that? She knows, she knows everyone. Yeah, no, I think she may. She might. Have, right? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And and it's it's we're 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 really kind of expanding the purview of it to television as well because it does feel like to your point, HBO really kind of comes into its own um, through ninety nine and and onwards. And and HBO, I, I mean, having worked at UTA as to Kenny for for many years. Um, they love playwrights. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> they, they, I mean, a lot of their shows, um, you know, are populated with, with playwrights, which is interesting. It, and in, in 1999, still, you know, I think, uh, uh, I, you know, I graduated drama school in 97. It was still an ambition if you were going to leave theater to be a screenwriter. It was by 2003, 2005, <laughs> around then, yeah, you know, the ambition for a playwright was much more to work in television. So there's, hmm. you know, there, there's a, a real this. This is a real moment here in '99 for uh, for writers, you know, especially up and coming writers, young writers, aspiring writers. Uh, whether the ambition was film or, or TV, and we started seeing, I think, in '99, you know, uh, seeing some of the last great. Sort of writers' movies, yeah, um, mm-hmm. and and then you started seeing like Alan Ball, then after yeah. doing American Beauty, mm-hmm. then made Six Feet Under, you yeah. know. So and 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 that that uh, that he transition. was one of the he definitely was a, that was a real kind of uh, tip of the spear moment. It feels like in yeah. a lot of ways, him sort of making that transition. Did you move out here to be a screenwriter or a television writer? I moved out here to be a screenwriter. As did I. I moved out. I went to film school in Toronto. I moved out here, got the job at UTA, and and had all in full intentions of working in the MP Lit department. That was that was mm-hmm. my intention. And and then um, Six Feet Under really was a, a real seismic thing for me. It was my favorite. It's still my favorite show. But it was Alan Ball being wrapped at UTA. I really started to think about the TV lit side of things. I got a job working for Dan Ehrlich very briefly, and then. Uh, working for. I didn't know you worked for Dan Ehrlich. I did. It was very, very brief. Yeah. It, was a, it was a long month. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but it was yeah. a long December. It was a long, it was, it was April too. Oh, it was awful. A long April. Um, but all that April's be, the cruelest month. It's the cruelest month. Yeah. I, uh, I, I also spent an April on someone's desk and it was the hellest. <laughs> it's just like, how is this possible? Yeah. Um, but, but all that being said, I think Kenny's point is it does feel like, you sort of see that transit. I mean, now it's not even a question. There are just people that are like, they have their sights set on television. Like that, that's just what it is. That's been 15 years. Right. But that's how long I've been out here. Oh, uh, no, I know. You know but I mean? isn't like, that crazy? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, the, I, I moved out to be a screenwriter as well. Mm-hmm. And so that was 04. And Ryan Lee, who was a, um, uh-huh. UT agent at the time and friend of mine, mm-hmm. um, he'd only been out here for a year and he said to me, you're crazy to spend your time writing screenplays. You have to try to be a TV writer. And I really looked up to him and really thought he knew everything. And that was it. Yeah. It was from that moment forward. I just started writing TV specs instead of, instead of spec screenplays. So. Yeah. I, 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 if I'm being completely honest, I don't think I even really had a comprehension of what TV writing even really entailed. You know, it was, it was, and and that's why I mean I, I approached my my time at UTA as a graduate degree of 
trying to figure <laughs> out how things sold, why things sold, how to build a career, all of that sort of stuff. And, you know, within three months at UT, I was like, oh, wait a second. Why wouldn't I want to be a television writer? Why wouldn't I want to be in a room with seven to ten other talented writers that will only make me, in theory, a better writer? I could tell you There's a thousand reasons. reasons. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of reasons why. I obviously know those reasons now, but as an assistant, it seemed yeah. – I think it also just seemed like there was a career path. Like as a feature writer, there is none. Yeah. Whereas in television, we were like, oh, okay, I'll get an assistant job and then I'll do this and I'll it's do this. And I'll, I'll work – there's a ladder yeah. here. There's no ladder in movies. It's just like hope you write a great script and someone reads it. That's how I feel about working at the agency. I just feel like it's the sanest way to start in this industry. 100%. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not necessarily the best. Oh, it's not fun. It's not You're, fun, but, but at yeah. least you are put right in the middle yep, of things yep. and you have so many ways out. Well, that and also just the networking of, of relationships, oh, yeah. all of it. I mean, it's, it's, there's no question it is the only way to start a career in Hollywood. The sanest. I mean, you know, so many people start different ways. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. if you're lucky enough to get a writer's PA job out of college, yeah, yeah. more power to you. But you're, most people aren't. Yeah. And yeah. All right. Alex, thank you so Bex much man, for being best here. Man, it was fun. Week, Alex was awesome. This was, this was yeah. fantastic. Would, will you, will you come back for another movie maybe or some or television? TV show. TV? Something I've seen. Yeah. Yeah. Like a TV show, for instance. Yeah. I watch TV. <laughs> Maybe a Sopranos episode, for instance, or something like that. Absolutely. That'd be amazing. Um, are you, you're not on social media, right? You don't really do that. I am that. now. Oh, really? Uh, are you on Twitter and the Alex Wu? Oh, there you go. Okay. It, it, I, it's, it's not out of, uh, out of egotism or anything, but I, <laughs> I wanted to be an Alex Wu, but it's anal EX. Might have attracted the wrong crowd. Yeah, I mean, diff, diff, or I might have more followers. Yeah. Might have more followers. Hard to say. Um, we are at podcast like 1999 on uh, Twitter and Instagram. Please rate and subscribe. Thank you so much for listening. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. 
you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.